Hello and welcome to Cinema to the Letter. This episode, it's that indie known as Clerks. Cinema to the Letter, we break down the very nature of cinema, letter by letter. For each episode of a film miniseries topic, we cover six films that fit a C for classic, I for an indie, N for new, E for egregious, M for masterpiece, and A for atypical. Who doesn't love an acronym, am I right? I am Thomas, and I am supposed to be here today, recording, <laughs> with uh, the gentleman here. Uh, hello, I am Brian, and uh, I don't watch movies. <laughs> Really funny line delivery. <laughs> very true. Very true. But we're not the only ones here, Brian. We have uh, a customer coming in to, I don't know, say some ridiculous thing to us, and then we say something ridiculous to them, and then we like spit in their face, and then they leave. Um, I don't believe he's played by Walt Flanagan. He might be. I don't know. Uh, but uh, we have uh, from Marco Polo, an Adult Swim podcast on our own Patreon, as well as just one of uh, my dearest friends, Mr. Tori DePina. Tori, sir, welcome. Yay. Okay, so this is the part where I say a slur, right? No, but <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> yes, uh, we really appreciate you doing that and not saying a slur. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Which I didn't edit anything out, guys. He didn't say a slur <laughs> yet. The night is young. But welcome, everyone. So, yes, this is our second episode of our Disney miniseries, which uh, is interesting given we're talking about our eye for Indy, and we tease this in our like little bonus episode that we put out. But um, hard to find an eye for Indy for the major conglomerate Disney. Uh, but <laughs> we settled on the sort of loophole of back in the 90s, uh, 1993, uh, the company that distributed Clerks, which, well, there's a lot. To get into. <laughs> Gotta talk about these motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to talk about these motherfuckers, yes. Uh, but the company that distributed uh, Clerks was owned by Disney at the time. And uh, this weirdly became kind of like a Disney franchise, or at least part of it. Uh, because, you know, they distributed this movie, and then later Clerks the Animated Series aired on ABC. <laughs> An inexplicable <laughs> thing that did happen. Um, and, you know, Kevin Smith worked with this company that will name check in a bit, uh, quite a bit, kind of started off his career, along with, you know, what Clerks is in general. And before we get into any of that, this is monumental, because we have to talk about our history with Kevin Smith. We'll fully establish this to Brian, had no sort of real knowledge of Kevin Smith prior to doing this episode, right? Not really. I knew that he had been, like, one of these big 90s indie directors who, like, you know, made these kind of... Uh, you know, very cheap movies for, like, shoestring budgets and then kind of rose to, like, cult status and all that stuff. But I I mainly knew him as, like, a guy who talked about comic book movies and comic books and stuff like that. You knew his crying selfies, though, those great framed crying <laughs> yes. selfies after I just saw Thor The Dark World. <laughs> I remember that. That was kind of weird. But, like, 
I, I don't know. He's always just been outside of my like periphery, really, and like what I've been just like movies I watched and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I know him now, and I've I've seen this movie in particular, and uh, yeah, he's an interesting guy, which we'll get we'll get into. Yeah, yeah. I want to hear about your history with with Clerks and Kevin Smith because it's uh, it's extensive, right? Yeah, I think it's safe to say that's the case for myself and Tori. Um, Tori and I have been friends for quite a while, and a big sort of uh, bonding thing for the two of us was our mutual, I don't know if uh, appreciation is the right word as much as our fascination with Kevin Smith uh, that started his love, at least. I'm curious, Tori, why don't you go first? What is your sort of history, your journey with Kevin Smith? So it's like it's it's summer 99, and me and my brother are bored and... We um we had the little black box that got us like free cable and free pay per view and shit. So mm-hmm. one of the first movies we watched ever like together as like brothers and shit that was like we weren't supposed to watch this was the movie Dogma, and you know which is like Kevin Smith hit probably top five movie he's made, and you know that was the first time that we saw these random characters like Jay and Silent Bob, and you know I had no clue about any of like the previous movies at the time. And then, like, a few years later, then Jay and Silent Bob uh, Strikes Back, I think that's the one it was, um, came out. And then, you know, the big, all the stuff that came from that, that was a pretty deep, like, successful movie, pretty big. But I learned from, like, basically slightly older people that I just knew um, would talk about these other movies, like Clerks and Mallrats, Chasing Amy, like, all these other movies. So, you know, as I got older and, you know, thanks to the internet, I was able to like, you know, in, in video rental stores when they used to exist, um, I would go and I would like basically just like rent these movies and try to, you know, sink my teeth into like this, this view askew universe or whatever, whatever he wants to call it. And, you know, obviously it's like, I've gotten started to watch like Clerks, Chasing Amy, Mallrats, Clerks 2, like pretty much everything I just like ingested basically. And I loved it. You know, love the characters, love the dialogue, loved the weird nerdy quirk references that I really didn't get at the time anyway, because I didn't grow up a big comic book person. You know, I mean, I got the Star Wars references, obviously, but that's it. Um, but I really liked the characters, loved the dialogue. It had like a charm, you know what I mean? And, and even with Kevin Smith's bad movies, you still like get a, like a, a sort of charm where it's like Star Wars reference, dialogue, irreverent characters, like, you know, little, little things here and there. And that's what, like, really drew me in. You know, me and my brother, we just we just go through all these movies. And that was, like, a bonding thing. So Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a similar backstory in terms of... Um, I first got into Kevin Smith to any degree because Dogma was on Comedy Central in the middle of the day. I was, like, 12. And uh, they obviously cut out all of the, you know, offensive material, like, to the degree that... Brian, there's a whole subplot involving a monster literally made out of feces in Dogma... Completely okay. cut out of that TV version. That character's just not demon. there whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got Chris Rock screaming, it's the shit demon. And it's like, you don't yep. get to see it, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I got to see yeah. that because it was like, oh, hey, free pay-per-view. <laughs> so no yeah, a movie starring Chris Rock, Selma Hayek, Alan Rickman, Jane Silent Bob. Uh, <laughs> weird. <laughs> yes, very weird movie on a lot of levels. So that is connected to this one. In the same universe, of course. Of yeah, course. they're all that you can see at the, the very. Universe. Yeah. If you see the very end of the credits, it says Jay and Silent Bob will return in Dogma, at the end of Clerks. Does it? Yes, I need to go verify this right now. 
Yeah, it's just at the very end. Uh, that was originally what he wanted to do as his second Paramount movie. Plus, where I watched the movie. <laughs> right, yes. But, um, yeah, so that's how I first got exposed to him was that. And then Jay and Silent Bob was also on Comedy Central a lot. But I remember watching them, especially Comedy Central used to have this thing called The Secret Stash, which would air after midnight on, like, Saturdays, where it's like, oh, we'll present a movie uncut on television. I was <laughs> yep. shocked by this, that this could ever happen. And yeah, those two were sort of my uh, initial introduction as well. And then I went back, rented at Blockbuster, uh, <laughs> Clerks and Chasing Amy and Mallrats. And it's a similar thing like Tori was talking about where, like, these movies were obviously very vulgar. And I started watching them at far too young an age, long before I knew what weed was, what certain sexual <laughs> organs were, et cetera, and so forth. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it it was a weird kind of thing that like I just became so deeply obsessed with and this was back when I was a kid if I got into something I went like full hog into that thing until eventually oh, yeah. like I got burned out but kept denying it to myself that was kind of like my history with Kevin Smith is pretty much like really burning bright on him uh seeing like Clerks 2 in a the theater with my dad which was a very awkward experience I wouldn't <laughs> recommend for anyone I, I just was, like, so ingrained in that. In 2005, when we went to New York as, like, a family trip, my mother and my sisters, because uh, my sister, sister was performing at the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade uh, for that particular thing as part of, like, her dance troupe, which was fun. Cool. Um, but the first night when, like, everyone else went to the Rockefeller, like, dancers, I was dead set on, like, Kevin Smith is having a signing in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> so God bless my mother, who not too long after we flew to New York, we hopped on a train, went to Jersey, stood in line. I, she took my picture with Walt Flanagan, which exists somewhere. Um, and more importantly, I got the my Clerks Chasing Amy script book signed by Kevin Smith, which I did love. Oh, His man. little uh, inscription was uh, to the introduction bit. He was just like pointing to it and said, like, Thomas, this is all bullshit. Love K. Smith. Um, and there's also a picture of me at like 13 with braces, like the most embarrassing possible photo next to Kevin Smith. I have to dig that up somewhere. It's got to be somewhere. I got to find oh, it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Post that. Uh, uh, Brian, but, this, is a, this, is a, this is a moment because I'm, I'm learning this with you. I've never known this. He's never told me this before. No, I've never revealed <laughs> this. I've never gone this way. <laughs> yes. are being spilled. <laughs> yes. The beans are being spilled. Yeah. Yes. Yes, for sure. And I think a lot of it was just, you know, I'm a heavy person, grew up especially a heavy kid. Kevin Smith just seemed kind of like a best case scenario, quite frankly, for me, because right. he's a guy who like owned that he was fat and was really just like into like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm big or whatever, but I have a hot wife and I make <laughs> movies with my friends. So it's just like, oh, the dream, the dream to possibly be Kevin. Um, so I modeled a lot of my personality at that time in high school on being like a Kevin Smith fan. So like the coolest person you'd always want to be around <laughs> somebody who quoted movies about like weed and sex who had not experienced either of those things at all at that time. Uh, but then, yeah, I remember especially when the podcast became the Smodcast, which started in like 2007 was like the first time I was aware that you could have like a podcast as a thing. I could literally walk around with my iPod mini on because I had gotten into the audio commentaries for Kevin Smith movies. If you listen to any of the audio commentaries, they're pretty much like a podcast. 
that like still oh, references right. stuff specifically about the movie, but it's very free form, especially when they sure. have like the big groups where it's like whenever they have Muse on, Jason Muse, uh, especially during his various different drug experiences, like literally for clerks, the laser disc commentary has like Jason Muse introduce himself and then like fall asleep <laughs> on the floor <laughs> by like 15 minutes in. Uh, but I love those commentaries, and then I listened to the Smodcast, and I was like, oh my god, this is so great. And then that kind of started me down the path of podcasting to any degree. So if you have complaints, send them to at that Kevin Smith on whatever <laughs> socials. <laughs> yeah, and then there's a certain point, obviously, where like I kind of got tired of like his movies, and then I slowly got tired of his various different podcasts. And then I just kind of consider, at this point, Kevin Smith to kind of be like that uncle who, when you were younger, you loved seeing at family reunions. Like, the sure. cool guy. <laughs> the guy who was kind of immature, wasn't like your parents, but you're like, oh my god, he's like the best person ever. And then you keep growing up, and he stays the same, and you're yeah. like, oh, mm-hmm. that's not... It's, it's not quite as charming, but like, dick and fart jokes aren't necessarily as like endearing to me. But I'll say at this point, when, you know, he's become kind of the person that Brian is aware of. This, like, yeah. mogul... The sort of his attempt at a Stan Lee style personality thing yeah, that's gone yeah. out. Yeah, I I think with this modern era, I was kind of disappointed in that because I kind of loved like if you listen to the earlier Kevin Smith like interviews and stuff, he kind of feels like a bit more sardonic and a bit more you know dry and a bit more. He felt at least like oh this guy like carries himself really well and he's learned and he knows about pop culture things very well and it's interesting just seeing. Like, his career trajectory kind of mirrors with the rise of geek culture for all its good and ill. Mostly ill. Mostly a massive ill. Massively. For society at large. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he kind of rolled with the punches, kind of, like, turned this all into a career for himself when his movies weren't doing as well. But he still keeps up you know, doing his movies sometimes, especially after his heart attack, which happened in, like, 2018. That was kind of, like, a moment for me where I'm like, well... I'm tired of this guy, but, like, I hope the best for this dude. This guy meant so much to me when right. I was younger that it's like, yeah, I, you know, at this point now, when he's doing, you know, like, these modern, you know, podcasts and movies and stuff, I, I'm decently charmed by it, but at a distance. It, it almost feels like a band you liked when you were in high school, and you were just like, God, they get me. This is it. Yep. And then you, like, you grow up, you, you know, you... You get out of it and you just listen to it as an adult and maybe you still tune in for an album like you, you got to tune in for the new album but you're just not into it as much as you were it kind of feels like that a bit yeah that's very accurate i don't know if you, did you have a similar sort of like modern relationship with him tori not really <laughs> to be fairly honest <laughs> with you <laughs> i just like you know just enjoyed the movies for what it was i did like um i didn't even listen to podcasts like i really wasn't like into kevin smith where it's like Listen, I need to watch him do terrible stand up and all these fucking, like, blows it, like, Jay and Silent Bob get old, like, these weird tours. Like, I've never had, like, a, a, a yearning to want to, like, do that. Maybe go to, like, a, um, a an autograph signing. Maybe even go to a movies if it's, like, here in Atlanta or something like that. But, nah, it, it was, to me, it was, like, all about the movies. So, like, just straight up. I kept it to that. And maybe, like I said, maybe a couple of interviews or two. I like the actors that were behind it probably a lot more than Kevin Smith himself. You know what I mean? Like following Brian O'Halloran's career, Jeff Anderson. 
you know, people who I think were like super talented and maybe never really got a fair shake at Hollywood, but they got a fair shake because of Kevin Smith. And I, you know, I give him his flowers for that. But yeah, it was just like my, my whole thing. Um, when he had like his heart attack, I was like, Oh shit. And mind you at the time it was like probably a decade of me hating his movies and not enjoying them as well as I used to. Um, I, I feel like the peak me growing up was once Zach and Miri came out, it was like a fucking descent into like, oblivion with him as like a talent as like a storyteller and it just felt like every movie that was coming out it was either dated like red state where it's like i'm saying something about evangelistic christians and it's like a decade too late because who cares at that point in 2011 cop out which felt like just a half-assed movie that he had no like he had no heart in whatsoever and then the trilogy of movies where it's just missed potential that he just kept dropping the ball on. I just like, I was just losing interest. Uh, and then a yoga hoser is your favorite film of all time, I assume, right, Tori? <laughs> yoga hoser's favorite. <laughs> uh, oh, God, no. Uh, anyways. <laughs> Tori and I found out that Yoga Hosers was playing like the first Dragon Con I went to. It was playing in Atlanta. So we went to like the one theater that was a ways away. <laughs> Tori is shaking like, his head angrily. It's like an hour away from like <laughs> yep. where we lived at the time to go see this movie, and like not even twenty minutes in, I was just like, "Dude, what what what, did, what are we doing right now?" <laughs> like, yep. And I didn't, <laughs> and I was just like, it made me not want to see because I didn't see Tusk at the time, and it made me not want to see Tusk, which I eventually ended up seeing, and I have an odd appreciation for now compared to Yoga Hosers. I don't want to see Moose Jaws, but, you know, I can appreciate what he tried to do. A movie that he keeps claiming, like, it will happen eventually. I'm like, I don't know, Kevin. There's a lot of reasons you shouldn't do that movie <laughs> at this point. He's like, dude, I, I feel like uh, I feel like I'm going to get a vulgar sequel before I get fucking <laughs> Moose Jaws. <laughs> yeah, vulgar. The movie that's adapting the opening logo of Clerks, Brian. Like, it's all about that clown, yeah. which weird logo, by the way. Very odd opening logo with like the clown like coming out in fishnets yeah. and shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brian, I may have met you like an hour ago, but I have to give you this advice: never see vulgar. You do not ever see vulgar <laughs> under no. any circumstance. Do not see vulgar. This is not me saying do not see it and then go against the grain. Like wink, wink, go see vulgar. No, this is do medical not advice. This is-, <laughs> <laughs> this is life. <laughs> this is this is life or death. Do not see that movie. <laughs> yeah, imagine if like Joker was somehow more edgy. And raw okay. than it already was. Okay. And it stars Brian O'Halloran, Dante himself. Okay. Interesting. Oh, poor guy. Yeah, yeah, it's just, nah, it's just ugly. Just an ugly, disgusting movie. <laughs> but yeah. yeah dr- directed by yeah. Uh, his Kevin Smith's buddy, Brian Johnson, who was the basis for Randall, ostensibly. Uh, Pretty much. We'll yeah. get into yeah. here. Gotcha. Um, Ooh, gotcha. But you know what? Yeah. Just, just, just to wrap up, I guess, in like the Kevin Smith in general thing. Definitely have a similar moment to like what Tori was talking about where like a moment I knew I had grown up was when Clerks 3 was making its rounds like its tour thing which is what he does now where like he has enough of a fan base to just be able to like show the movie and then talk for three hours after it (laughs) and just amass people to that it was playing in my local downtown art house theater I could have easily gone down there and seen it and I was just like no I don't want to do that necessarily um just my 12 year old self is like kicking me it's like, how? How could you not go? And it's, well, it's Clerks. Right. Yeah. Mine was at an actual Cinemark. Like, it was actually in a major movie theater here. So, 
you know, my girlfriend was kind of like, oh, we should go see it. Because we were like, I was like, why are you telling me? You hate these movies. <laughs> why are we seeing this? <laughs> and she's like, oh, because I was, I was going through a lot of shit at the time. I wasn't really in a great headspace. And she was like, oh, you need to have fun. Stop being all sad and depressed and shit. I'm like, oh, okay. So we just went to go see it. And I had the opposite effect. I actually thoroughly enjoyed the hell out of it even though it's probably the most bittersweet movie I've seen in the last two or three years, um, I kind of enjoyed it. By default, we were the youngest people in the theater because everybody was yeah. like Kevin Smith's age. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, that's a lot, a lot more Gen Xers as opposed to like us. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm the only person with this skin tone that was there, which I was. <laughs> but... <laughs> like... <laughs> so... <laughs> nerd culture, yay! But, uh... <laughs> but, um... <laughs> I, honestly, it was a lot better. I was like, this isn't great. I'm not going to convince people to go see this. But for me, I needed this film at the time. Just because of the themes and the topics it was dealing with. And I needed I needed to yeah. see a movie like this. And um, I'm grateful to him for that. Even if I'm not entirely a, in agreement with what he made creatively as far as the choice is concerned with those movies. But, you know, as far as like Kevin Smith films, it was the best thing I've seen in like, at that point, a decade from him. So... You know, yeah, gotta get props we'll, props do. We'll talk about this because this is very key to like a sort of assignment I gave to Brian uh, for this episode right. uh, involving the two other movies that have clerks in the title. Um, but you know, we might as well get into the first movie. Let's dive in. Here's a clip from the trailer for Clerks. Salsa shark. We're gonna need a bigger boat. Throughout history, they have been a part of our American life. Men and women who have made it their mission to serve their fellow man. They've worked hard enough. Isn't it time? They had their own movie. Clerks. This job would be great if it wasn't for the customers. I, I don't bother them and they don't bother me. I can do without the people in the video store. Do you have that one with that guy who was in that movie that was out last year? You should hear the barrage of stupid questions I get. What do you mean there's no ice? You mean I gotta drink this coffee hot? You'd feel a hell of a lot better if you just rip into the occasional customer. You're a clerk, paid to do a job. You can't just do anything you want while you're working. Hey, you open? No! What kind of convenience store do you run here? Miramax Films presents... You think anybody can see us down here? Why? Do you want to have sex or something? <sighs> can we? Clerks, just because they serve you doesn't mean they like you. So Clerks came out October 19th, 1994 from writer-director Kevin Smith. And um, the, the story of this movie has been documented in various places. I'll give you the short version. Uh, in 1993, Kevin Smith, after he had kind of like been, you know, go, hopping from like minimum wage job to minimum wage job, uh, ended up signing up for an eight-month program uh, that was in Vancouver, a uh, film program, because he'd been interested in movies for so long. Um, and he went to this Vancouver film school and met up with Scott Mosier, uh, future director of The Grinch 2018, which is a an good interesting movie. <laughs> Ryan's favorite movie. movie of all time, The Grinch Thomas 2018. I have talked about multiple times, and I think is a good a good movie. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, weird. it's this is the guy, by the way, in the movie. Brian, he plays two roles. He plays Willem, the guy with the beard, Snowball, okay. who says that's beautiful, man. That yeah. guy. <laughs> And then also the angry guy when they're playing hockey. 
who like goes up the ladder just says, "Hey man, you gotta like come back down here. I want to get buy cigarettes." Oh, cool. Okay, that's him. Okay. And he, there's the point where he talks to himself. Where like Willem's like, "Are you open?" No, which Kevin Smith describes as the only special effect in Clerks. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, so basically they met up and they decided like, you know, what? we're gonna make the movie in New Jersey because Kevin Smith was like, I'd read a, an interview with Robert Rodriguez saying uh, you should make a movie based on what you have available. And he's like, I have access to this store, which he had worked at for so long. And so he would work the store during the day, uh, which was this convenience store called Quick Stop that also had RST video attached a video store. Um, So during the day, uh, he would work, and at night, he would film. And uh, it's the story specifically of uh, Dante Hicks, played by Brian O'Halloran, who's, you know, your 23-year-old kind of schlub who quit college and is kind of just, you know, passing by doing this convenience store gig. And it's all a day in the life as he uh, finds out various different things about his personal life, while at the same time he has long conversations, particularly with Randall, his buddy who works at the video store played by Jeff Anderson. And yeah, it's very much like a slice-of-life movie that involves uh, a lot of talking, a lot of black and white, and uh, a couple of... Lovable stoners hang out outside. Jane Silent Bob. Uh, so, this is the movie that made Kevin Smith what he is. Uh, he ended up making this on a budget of $27,575, which he got mostly by maxing out his credit cards and <laughs> selling his comic book collection and stuff. Um, and uh, he managed to put this together and eventually got distributed and ended up making $4.4 million in 94 money. Not Nothing to sneeze at. Considering Pretty especially good. that low production cost. To the degree that like like it cost another two hundred and thirty thousand dollars to add like post production to the movie, including like songs and stuff. So right. the post production budget entirely was like over two hundred times like the budget <laughs> itself. Um yeah, so Tori, I'm curious, when do you come across clerks after your sort of introduction with like Dogma and Jane Silent Bob Strike Back? Pretty much it was like um a thing that I used to kind of do and maybe it was the issue that i had with having like tunnel vision focus like having adhd and the website wikipedia was kind of like my opening to like looking up things i couldn't look up when i was like earlier in my life not really having internet and not really being able to like look up stuff minus being at the library so i was like oh i really like these kevin smith movies i like dogma everyone always keeps telling me to see clerks or whatever, even though I'm clearly not the right age to see it. <laughs> so I'm like, screw it. I'm going to look it up, try to find it or rent it, whatever. I think I ended up renting it at like a blockbuster and I think I, and then I just like was able to watch it. And I think I watched it like two or three times that whole weekend, like multiple times, <laughs> like more times than I probably should have. But, uh, you know, when I saw it, I was just like, oh, this is it. This is like what started all the stuff that I was liking. Like this, like, I don't get Dogma without this movie being successful, even to the point where, like, Brian O'Halloran in the character Dante, and then having, like, the multitudes of Dante like characters that are throughout the universe, like the, like the reporter in Dogma, for instance. Right. Yes. Brian, in, in Mallrats, Chasing Amy, and Dogma, Brian O'Halloran comes back as other characters with the last name Hicks. So okay. implying there's like a series of cousins who look very yeah. similar to each other, uh, okay. <laughs> who live okay. in like this New Jersey area. <laughs> That's pretty. I funny, guess <laughs> the douchiest one is in Marats because you get to see Brian O'Halloran oh, yeah. with like long hair, looking like the dude who did the room, 
and he has he's clean shaven, but he looks like he has like a like a like a puffy like marshmallow face when he doesn't have a beard. <laughs> it's just like this like weird curvy face looking uh, jerk who's like trying to like get in with people, and he's trying to do all these like sweet one liners, and they're terrible. And then chasing Amy, he plays like an MTV executive next to Matt Damon. By the way, <laughs> early right, Matt Damon yeah. appearance in that movie. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Dogma, he plays a reporter who's just a reporter. You know, he's just, he, right. there's nothing really much to him except he's just a reporter. So, yeah. And Jeff Anderson yeah. also plays like a gun clerk guy who like sells the Ben and Matt again once, like, that's that movie's so weird. Dogma was made like as they were winning their Oscars for Goodwill Hunting. Right. <laughs> like they left yep. the shoot to get their Oscars. It's weird. It's wild. But anyway, anyway, back to clerks. So, Brian. I'm very curious, <laughs> just walking into this blind, uh, how did you feel overall about Clerks? It's really interesting to to watch this movie, especially because I haven't seen it before, but I think for so many reasons, because one, I'm clearly much younger than the audience that this movie was was, was kind of meant for. Yes. How dare you. <laughs> but also just watching it in 2023 like how is this going to hold up basically 30 years later and i i really liked it i think it'd be really easy to just watch this and dismiss it as like just kind of uh, whatever 90s stuff part of you know it it was influential at the time but hasn't aged well but i think it there's a lot in here that still to this day holds up and there's a lot in here that i think Someone like me who had like had no context for Kevin Smith, I I understand why after this he became such a big deal because like the the, the kind of scrappy nature of this movie is really interesting. I think that the movie, despite how '90s it is in like a lot of the bad ways it has aged, um, I think certain aspects of the movie still resonate, and I think. You know, I, I get it. Like, I get why this was such an impactful movie at the time. And it, it also just is one of my favorite kind of genres, which is 90s malaise. It's just a genre I've loved in movies for yeah. a bunch of, you know, just a bunch of other movies of this time. Some obvious ones, like, of course, like, you know, you've got like Fight Club and The Matrix and stuff, but like other stuff like, you know, The Ice Storm or whatever. Or even the uh, movie that influenced Kevin Smith greatly with this being made uh, Slacker. Richard Linklater. Slacker. As well, yes, which this reminded me so much of Slacker. Um yeah. for obvious obvious reasons, but it, yeah, I mean uh, there's a lot in here I I really like, but I'm I, I don't know. I'm I'm kind of curious to hear kind of especially from you Thomas like what was it about like this movie that really like got you? I, I'm curious cuz I, I I I get it, but I'm 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 curious to hear kind of your perspective on it on it. Well, yeah, when you consider that this wasn't my introduction, I feel like if this had been the first Kevin Smith movie I saw at, like, 12 or whatever, it'd be like, I don't know, this is, like, kind of funny, but it's not really grabbing my attention as much as, like, Dogma's a weird, like, urban fantasy movie about angels and demons fighting each other, but on a Kevin Smith scale, so no real, like, action choreography or anything like that. Um... And then Jane Silent Bob Strike Back is very much like a 2000s-era comedy, all the sleekness of that. Um, right. versus by the time you get back to this point with, like, Clerks, like, I remember just finding it, like, interesting as a kid as, like, oh, this is, like, sort of the early Promethean version of what I liked about those other movies. Uh, but at the same time, it's also, I think, twofold. One, 
that whole geek culture thing that I referenced earlier. Because when I watched this, it would have been probably more around like 2000, like five. So that okay. would have been still like a fresh thing. This was uh, pre MCU days, kids, uh, <sighs> when you know being a dork and a nerd uh, was you know just seen as like oh he has a pocket protector or whatever. <laughs> instead of now yeah. where it's just consumed all of our lives um, and it's just everywhere and everyone loves all the superhero things. Like I definitely found out about certain, like, Marvel-specific characters for the first time because of Kevin Smith dialogue. Of course, right, right. Like, I was aware of Star Wars, but anytime they reference, like, a comic thing, I'm like, oh, what's that? What's that thing? I have no idea what they're talking about. Why is he talking about the thing's penis, which happens in Mallrats? There's an extensive talk about superhero sex organs involving oh. Stan Lee as well. <laughs> he, he did the Stan Lee cameo before Marvel got to it. That's funny. Yes. Uh, but but yeah, I think like that geek culture thing definitely appealed to me at the time. But then also, as I've grown up, I think the bigger thing that sort of makes this one stand out is definitely, I would say, if not Kevin Smith's best movie, then one of his best movies. It's just the, the thing that you're talking about, Brian, that I think really stays similar is just minimum wage jobs and how much it fucking yeah. like sucks working them. Uh, I'll just say we met on a job that's not too dissimilar. From Pretty much, yeah. Uh, the the yeah. quick stop thing, yes, right. I was at that job at far too old an age, I would say, <laughs> compared sure, to my yeah. coworkers, I would argue. And I remember saying, literally, the line, just like, this job would be great if it weren't for the customers. And whoever I was working with laughed hysterically. They're like, that's a great line, dude. I can't believe you made that up. And I'm like, I didn't, I didn't make that up. That's from yeah, the whole it, movie. It's so interesting, though, to think about, like, when Clerks is coming out. And it does... It, I don't know. I, I'm imagining, and I don't know how much of this because I wasn't alive, of how much a novelty it was of like showing minimum wage workers. And I think, especially now, like I think watching that part of the movie, I was like, this is still like very relevant and still very like, you know, resonates, I think, still with life today, which is kind of what, which is what Kevin Smith is doing here is trying to just represent like normal everyday life, right? It's that, it's the Linklater thing. Well, no, I, w I would say the one thing that's kind of different is more, uh, this is very much like a mom and pop operation, which just doesn't really exist nearly as much anymore. With like, whenever you go to a gas station, it's rarely, you know, like a quick stop convenience store. It's like a 7-Eleven or some shit where there's more micromanaging versus this one being more just about like, oh yeah, the owners would just let these people run these fucking places for like yeah. hours on end. These like 23-year-old schmucks could do whatever the fuck they want. Like in... Uh, the documentary, which I rewatched uh, about the making of Clerks, called Snowball Effect, which is very cute. Um, but uh, they talk about how, like, him and Brian Johnson, uh, who I mentioned earlier, worked at the Quick Stop and RST and would say, like, it was less a place where we worked and more a clubhouse where people would occasionally interrupt us talking about bullshit, which feels <laughs> accurate to the vibe of this movie, I would say. But do you think that uh, that's accurate, Tori, about capturing kind of like the minimum wage job experience? Well, yeah, I'd say like minimum wage, blue collar job, that sort of thing. That's the thing I like about these, uh, at least the first one, because it's it's most like it's kind of like restrained, but not like unrestrained. Because like Clerks Two feels like a completely different movie. Same with Three. Oh yeah, Clerks One feels the most like laid back, almost in a way, like the most natural. Like it feels like these are real people. You know what I mean? That are working like these dead end jobs, and it, that's the thing about the first one is it just, it just nails it. Like the conversations mundane customers asking stupid ass questions uh i still work in customer service so i'm like 
this is mm-hmm. still like every day where it's kind of like, you know, I get asked I'm in the middle of my job, oh, where's the front entrance? And then I have to be like <laughs> right behind you. <laughs> or it's like, or it's like, oh, how much is this? And it's like, oh, it's, uh, it's like right in front of their fucking face. And, but it's like, you know, I have to like shut right, up. Right. And, and that lady who's just, how much is this? And it's like 99 cent signs are all around. <laughs> yeah. <your face. laughs> right. Yes. Fucking, I'm, I'm thinking of that zoom out, the zoom out's playing in my head right now. Like, how much this is gum or is this gum or whatever? And it's like, yeah. So it, it's just like, this is, this, it, it hits harder the older I get because I've just done nothing but work these jobs most of my life. So <laughs> it felt more like, ah, ha, 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 funny when I'm like 17, 18, but now I'm 32 and it's like, oh God, is this, <laughs> this, this is never going to end, huh? <laughs> it's like, yeah. One of the surprising things I, I found about this movie is that like, it, it's doing that whole minimum wage worker thing and doing that kind of next to this like, stoner comedy that's just so crude and like ridiculous and yet like the thing i find kind of most surprising is how earnestly it does kind of handle that like minimum wage is killing you kind of feeling and how like with dante's character like eventually like that idea of like how hard it is to like pull yourself out of that and like i think the movie earnestly like reckons with that which is i think like like you were saying tori like it feels very natural in a in a in a really like in a way that definitely clerks two and clerks three don't but yeah that's what i found so interesting is the way that it kind of actually engages with that conversation of like but it's really hard to like pull yourself out of working just a minimum wage job because it can just feel like yeah you're just doing it every day and yeah i think this movie handles that really well yeah, and I think particularly with, like, sort of contrasting sides of, like, Dante and Randall. Um, yeah. Like, Kevin Smith has often said that, like, Randall was based on his buddy Brian Johnson, who was much more sort of, like, you know, aloof and not that concerned with, like, other people's feelings as much as, like, the guy he was talking to at any point, including Kevin Smith. Um, and Dante was more based on him at that time. And you can see kind of, like, how throughout the movies, even, like, in Clerks 2 and 3 how that does weirdly kind of parallel, where he says that, like, Dante represents kind of, like, his more, you know, submissive side that's like, oh, I don't want to, like, rock the boat. I don't want, you know, to quote him about, like, when I was a kid, uh, I I wanted to (laughs) use the bathroom, but I couldn't, so I just shit my pants because I didn't want to, like, discomfort anything. Versus uh, Randall kind of having that guile to, like, in this case, make a movie or any of this other stuff. Like, that kind of um, back and forth, the, the yin and yang, as it were kind of deal of those two, um, I think does translate to the other movies. But also what's so interesting is, like, Kevin Smith is kind of infamous at this point. You know, if you hear any of those stories, like when he was shooting Cop Out with Bruce Willis and stuff like that, how uh, he doesn't really know much about cameras, despite directing multiple films. Um, And in this movie, that sort of lack of knowledge is more charming. Because it's like, oh, we're just having Mm -hmm. a stagnant two-shot at least two characters, but it feels like we're immersed. Like we are in this convenience store. Like we're like in line and we're just waiting for them to finish their conversation. So I can buy like my pack of cigarettes and like, yeah, I mean, so many of the shots are just like these, yeah, these, these two shots. And then like, they're talking for so long and then like, it's revealed that there's been a customer there the whole time. And it's, it's, yeah, you haven't even registered, even though you can just see like, barely off to the right there's the customer but you yeah you you don't even realize it and then 
it, it, yeah, it, it sort of springs you back into like, oh yeah, they're working this job and there's customers right in front of them as they're talking about mm. like snowballs or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And at least 60% of the time, it's probably Walt Flanagan as that particular customer. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, but, but yeah, so with this movie, it's hard to like do like a plot by plot beat necessarily because it's really like very episodic yeah. in terms of like the various characters who interact. I'm curious... Tori, what's your favorite sort of like comedic scene in this movie? I want to be careful because I want to say a scene that might be a little problematic at this point. Like, uh, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to say the scene where Dante is like flipping out that, uh, was it Veronica? Is that his dad was the ex-girlfriend? The one that he was dating with at the time? Yeah, yeah his yeah, current yeah, girlfriend, yeah. yes. Veronica, yeah, Marilyn Gigliotti, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. She's fantastic in that movie. Uh, just because it's just like, the thing about nerd culture is that I never really got into it, right? Because two things. Mostly because of the Kevin Smith shit and like seeing how ugly geek culture can be. And also uh, shit like Welcome to Eltonville, where it really showed these like very accurate, very ugly prestiges of like geek culture. And it scared me off from like fully immersing into it. I would always always get my feet into it. You know what I mean? So, and I always had like insecurities and shit like that growing up. And I felt like in that situation, I would have been Dante in that situation where I would have been flipping out that my girlfriend's like 36 packs before she met me just because I'm this stupid insecure of a fucking child <laughs> at this point in time in my life. So it's like, it, it's like very accurate, but it's also funny at the same time because of just how hilarious the back and forth is where it's just two Northeaster jerked off people yelling at each other <laughs> for, for an inane for an stupid reason. <laughs> Yeah, this is a common thing in the Kevin Smith catalog is sort of like asshole 23-year-old like white male protagonists just kind of like them realizing like, oh, maybe I'm not that smart and I have like yeah. insecurities <laughs> I have to deal with. Like Chasing Amy's literally about that, but just like, wait, the girl I'm interested in has fucked various different people, including like women? This is crazy. I can't believe it. Yeah, I I mean, that scene is kind of, is is very still funny though i think like even though you are Mm -hmm. watching this guy and you're very obvious obviously like just get over it dude but it is i think it is funny to see how not only just how upset he gets but i think a lot of the jokes that come from that like probably the one where it's like my girlfriend's of 37 dicks it's like in a row (laughs) and it isn't really funny to me yep or the guy who he encounters outside was just like don't go sucking dick in the parking lot and that guy leaves it's like hey Hey, you come back here. <laughs> Which, <laughs> trivia, Tori, this blew my mind. I found this out doing research. That guy, 10 years prior, was the guy who did all the body stuff for the Toxic Avenger. No way. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> Weird. Mitch Cohen. Crazy. Yes. <laughs> the one guy who had been in a movie before of this cast. Oh man, that's awesome! <laughs> the more you learn, I'd say the fun at the end today was hilarious. Just for the close-ups, at one point where I'm pretty sure Randall breaks a piece of bread over Dante's head. Yes, and it's just like it's just weird. <laughs> and maybe that's like the wrestling fan in me, where almost any inanimate object you get hit with involves you selling it like it was the worst pain ever <laughs> that you just got hit in the fucking face with. But just the idea of someone just grabbing a piece of bread or grabbing like a random sandwich and just beating your best friend over the head with it just sounded so like absurd to me or looked so absurd to me (laughs) but that's also like the the charm of that is just how like scrappy it does feel like it feels like an actual like awkward fight someone would have in a small ass convenience store 
if yeah. that were to happen. Yeah. Like, even just the way that, like, the Snickers and all the different candies are, like, strewn across the floor and everything after that. And I, I think I really do agree that, like, even with some of, like, the stuff that could be, like, considered problematic by, like, a modern spectrum, the comedy is also just from, like, the insecurity of this main guy. Which is like, I yeah. can't believe she's like 37 dicks, or I have to, like, beat up my best friend because of all these machinations that were caused by me <laughs> basically being a shit. That, that could, and I think in the wrong hands, end up feeling like, oh, why am I following this protagonist? Why do I give a shit? But it does feel like, with the distance of me being now nearly 10 years older than Dante was, Jesus fucking Christ. Um, <laughs> but just having that perspective of like, oh yeah, this guy is like completely immature and doesn't know what he wants to do with his life. So he'll just like grab onto like the nearest life preserver of like Caitlin Bree or Veronica or any number of other things to try and like coast his way through life. Yeah, and I mean like, I think another reason why you you kind of buy this character and you kind of are invested into this character is like Brian O. Halloran is really good in this movie, I think. I, I think he's very good in the first one. And I think he really like sells it as like just this ordinary guy. And he looks, he doesn't look like a movie star. He doesn't look, I mean, no one in this cast does really, but like he really just sells that. And like one of my favorite scenes is like that kind of uh, really sold me on it early on was the one it's, it's where she tells him that she's, how many dicks she sucked and it's like the it's the conversation they have like as they're like laying down underneath the like by the register and they're just having this like very normal conversation and just about like life and i i I loved that scene i think it was like it was a scene that really kind of sold me on this i was like okay this is what this movie is kind of going to be like we're going to have this like really crude humor but like it's still very human I like the detail that Dante's doing her nails. Right, time. yeah, I, yeah, that too. I, I just, I don't know, something about the, that scene, I was like, this is so sweet and, like, just nice. And then what comes afterwards is so funny and kind of weird, but, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. Like, it's, I, I love how they do a great job of conveying that, like, Veronica is somebody who's obviously very strong-willed, like her whole introduction with the Chulis gum guy, which is great. The bunch is like, wait, you're from Chulis? That's why you're trying to sell gum to people, which is a funny bit. But it also just sells the fact that like, she doesn't stand for bullshit necessarily, even though she's with Dante this whole time. Which is, I guess, her right. Achilles heel for bullshit is Dante fucking Hicks. Um, but I, I like that. I agree, yeah, that it feels like there's a bit more of an intimacy thing. Because you have, like, O'Halloran was, like, a uh, local theater actor who had worked okay. in, like, New Jersey. Um, so you either have, like, local actors or just people who Kevin Smith knew. Like, Jeff Anderson was, like, a high school friend of his who had right. never acted to any degree before this movie. Or, of course, fucking Jason Mewes here at, like, 19. Smith just wrote full things based on, like, what he would say because he was, like, one of these friends of his who was, like, a bit younger uh, than Kevin Smith, but he just found, like, this guy's funny and weird and so holy himself. And you can see why he's kind of carried throughout. Because as much as, like, the Jane Silent Bob shtick can get old at certain points, Muse just has this weird, fun energy that isn't really replicatable by anybody else. Yeah, he's like... I don't know, there's something about him that you're just, like, const you constantly are like, what the fuck is this guy gonna do now? Like, he he's so energetic, and he's so weird, and, like... Yeah, you do 
want to just watch whatever this guy's talking about. He's so compelling, you know, in a weird way. And he looks so like unique and everything The like the way he's dressed and everything. Yeah. It's he, he's great. He's great. Probably not his best performance. If you look at it, like critically, <laughs> as far as like all the times you see Jay and Silent Bob, because I feel like at that point, he's not even acting. He's just being himself. <laughs> he's like, I'll right. fucking do that moves or whatever the fuck he said. <laughs> just dropping just F bomb after F bomb, just saying whatever the fuck he wants <laughs> compared to like his later movies. But there's something like uh raw about it. You know what I mean? Like like I said earlier, like it feels it feels like real people. Real assholes, but still right. real people nonetheless, you know. Like apparently that was a big thing where in prep for this when like he gave Muse all the dialogue. He was just like, I don't know if I can say these things. Like, I've literally transcribed what you've said to me many times <laughs> in this movie, dude. And he's like, Oh, I don't know. I don't feel. I feel dumb saying it in front of people. Like, he was very camera shy. But I think that kind of comes off. Like, I love the bluster of his introduction uh, with like Jane Silent Bob. Like the first time you see him, like right outside the quick stop, is so like it's filled obviously with some of the more dated things that we don't necessarily agree with. Like he says a couple of f bombs that aren't fuck in that long diatribe of his, but it comes off to me just more of like, Oh, you're a child who has no idea what they're saying. Like, this is charming. You heard this on the playground, basically right. <laughs> repeating <Yeah>. it <laughs> like exactly. the circus seal line, which is so funny to me. Just like fuck you up like a circus seal. And then doing the movement is like, just so funny. To me. <laughs> and like, yeah, it, it just him and, Jeff Anderson, Randall, like they they do just remind me of like these like scumbag kids that you know, right? Just whatever like scumbag kids hung out, like they're probably drug dealers like like Jay and Silent Bob, like it, they they sell that so well that like you know, it, they feel like people that you might have gone to sc- to school with or something and just kind of what they ended up doing is this. One of my favorite bits that is clearly like a flub, but works perfectly for him, is like during his big monologue at the end, like the last scene with Jay, where he's talking about like, yeah, I see Veronica come in and she brings you lasagna. And there's a point where he says like, oh wait, I fucked that up. And it's just, that's actually what Jason used to he fucked up on the day and they kept it. And it just works perfectly because you can tell this is like a guy who does not think at all about what he's about to say before he says it. And, right. like, once again, like, that charming kind of, like, innocent kid way. Even when he's just like, I'll fuck anything that moves. It's like, you haven't been with anyone <laughs> at all. <laughs> you sweet summer child. He's just very, he's very defensive. Remember, guys, he, he's not gay. He lets you know that. In case you couldn't oh, tell, he'll, he'll remind you many times <laughs> that he, he is, is not completely whatsoever. 100% straight. Yeah. Did that stuff at all bother you, Brian? Going going to this now, your modern sensibilities? I mean, not necessarily. I mean, some of it is like, I think with any sort of dated thing, especially from the 90s, you just have, part of it is just like, it was the 90s, it was a different time. Yeah, it, it doesn't bother me nearly as much. And especially, I think, because, like you said earlier, Tori, like the, all these guys are like kind of scummy, kind of assholes, but like, they feel like real people and like, there are plenty of real people I knew growing up who said a lot of bad things like this, right? Especially, you know, yeah. It, it, so it, it didn't bother me as much, but I think it, it's certainly something I could see people watching now and being like, oh, this is weird that they're saying 
all, all of this and, and some of the humor I don't think lands as well because of that. But yeah, I think there's a lot of other stuff here that still has has aged well, like I mentioned before. But. Yeah, like even something as like upsetting as the, the climax of this movie. Sorry oh, to yeah. say it. In retrospect, not a great word to use <laughs> to describe it. Um, but like that climax with like Lisa Spoonhauer and her whole thing where she thinks Dante's in the bathroom and some, somebody else is there who'd been there for a while. Um, that could be like very, very uncomfortable and disturbing if done poorly. But I think they do a great job of like one only really saying it like this is definitely a movie that's just like we only are saying what is going on. We can't afford to show you anything <laughs> beyond right. like this counter basically. Um, so it lets you kind of paint that image in your head, but also they at least like try and paint that as like what it is, which is like horrible and uncomfortable, but also the main sort of comedy being like the, these paramedics coming in and just being like, what kind of convenience store are you running here? <laughs> this is just fucking crazy. That this is happening. And I think that that works for this movie where it almost, plays out like i said as like this kind of like almost audio drama with visual aids kind of right. thing just telling you like what's going on um that, that kind of works to its advantage for something like that or some of the the other more uncomfortable things um but at the same time then you also have stuff like a comedic beat i feared would like age so poorly with like how over star wars i am but the whole contractor discussion is still really funny it's because still it's funny. focusing on like this weird <laughs> idiosyncratic corner of the Star Wars universe, and then just the genius of having, like, the one construction guy come in and bring up the mob connects, just like, if those stormtroopers knew what they were getting into, I don't feel sorry for them at all. I wouldn't have taken the job. <laughs> it's, like, What's a he, really fun... What does he say? He's, like, a contract that also deals with this, like, point kind of with his, like, to his heart or something like that? Yes. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know what they signed up for. Yeah. Oh, Jersey. Yeah, right. God. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, like, it is interesting to sort of hear all of these, like, this pop culture, like, talk and kind of imagine that it was a novelty to hear, all, like, people talking like this and about this back then when, like, every time you go on Twitter, it's people arguing about, like, comic book stuff or superhero movies or whatever. And it, it, it yeah, it, it's interesting. And I think there is, like, a novelty to a lot of that stuff in this movie and especially like the star Wars stuff, which I'm like, I, I had heard of that scene, like just referenced, I think, and watching it and still being like, still a, fr a very funny like conversation that between two people that like I would have probably like at some point, because it's just stupid star Wars talk, you know, it's great. Yeah. Though for the record, Tony Gilroy put in uh, death star contractors into Andor season two. That's great. I want the Star Stormtrooper Labor <laughs> Union to be a key factor of Fandor season two. Um, but uh, yeah, Tor, I'm curious because you had referenced like the geek culture stuff earlier. How do you feel like those sort of elements age, and particularly Clerks? I feel like it's no different than it is like now. I feel like there's some asshole with his head up his ass, basically being a dick to somebody who doesn't know this pop culture reference or whatever as an act of superiority. I feel like it's the same shit. I feel like the only thing that have changed are the ways we communicate said thoughts. So instead of just being a jerk at a con, you're just a jerk on Twitter or any sort of social media. Uh, you know what I mean? And that's the thing where I was talking about earlier about stuff like clerics or welcome to Elton Bill and all these shows. I took it as like a warning that I was like, you know what? I might like this stuff, but I don't think I love this stuff very well 
Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, and maybe I missed out on stuff in my life as a result of that. You know what I mean? I didn't grow up with a lot of friends. So maybe there was an avenue I could have taken, but I don't know. I didn't want to be an ugly person like that. Maybe it was too much guilt, too much empathy I had. <laughs> I didn't want to be like those fucking people where it's just like you're just this miserable guy fighting over a, a, a fucking Han Solo doll or, or whatever or <laughs> being a jerk to somebody. I didn't want to be Simon Pegg yelling at the kid who enjoyed episode one in like space. Right. <laughs> like all these things felt like warnings to me. They were funny, but they felt like warnings to me. So it's like, don't be like this. <laughs> and yeah, uh, thankfully, <laughs> so yeah. That is an interesting thing about this where like for us, Tori, as like younger millennials, Gen Xers kind of had that reputation, at least to me, of like the guys who ran the comic book store who hated yeah. kids being in the comic book funny pages store. <laughs> where like you would try and like, oh, can I get this collected edition of uh, Batman The Dark Knight Returns? Like, whatever, fine go ahead and purchase that and get the fuck out of my face. Like, th there's that kind of vibe that these characters could fall into. But there is just the fact of, like, them dealing with specific customers who act like assholes makes me still endeared to them. Like, the whole the guy who's like, uh, I've been waiting outside for an hour for the video store to open because I want to return this tape so I can never come here again. And then Dante throws away his keys. Yeah. <laughs> Left your keys. <laughs> yeah, have you seen keys? No time for love, Dr. Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Boogie's on out of there. Yeah, I was like, and that's not even, I don't even think that counts as boomer. That might be greatest generation there. <laughs> so it's like, that's true. Like a 50 year old guy in 1994. Yeah. It would be more roughly. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Then <laughs> it's like, dude, I wish I could do this to half the boomers. I got into my job right now. Douchebags. But yeah, <laughs> but it's like, Oh yeah, I, I have bills to pay and I don't want to be homeless. So, uh, take it on the chin. Give it to me. <laughs> it's my fault. <laughs> well, I guess that's why Gen Xers have this like this overrated view of themselves as being like we were the first real generation to rebel against you know the old people, and now it's like they kind of learned nothing because a lot of them tend to be now the old people. Where it's like you fucking millennial snowflakes or you fucking Gen Z, so whatever, dude. I, I'm glad that me and Tom are kind of like. Now we get to kiss our own asses here. We're not going to be that way at all. Thank you. <laughs> no, gonna... <laughs> clearly not. No. We're better. We're just... <laughs> Me doing a podcast with Brian, I think, confirms that. I don't have that. <laughs> I, I could do that to Brian every day. Off mic, I do all the time. I just call him like a worthless Gen Z or get off my lawn. Uh, but... <laughs> that TikTok dancing on our podcast time. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> That's all that Brian does. Like, I Brian, do. like, when he's not talking, is doing TikTok dances. <laughs> I've been doing TikTok dances this whole time on, on the Zoom, actually. And I, that's why I haven't been talking. <laughs> I'm just jealous he has the hips to be able to floss. If I try to floss, I hear cracks and joints that I remember. Oh, God, I heard this today. What is wrong with me? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, it's, I'm already bitter about things, right? But I feel like I'm bitter to people who deserve it. Or I want to be the guy be like who's like the asshole to people who deserve it or whatever. You know, not that, not to be like completely consumed by it. Have some of it, you know, be a little bit bitter. But don't be consumed by it like the fucking Gen Xers are now. Or how the people are in half these like nerd culture comic book type fucking universe movies or whatever. Because it's not a, it's not happy. It's not a happy life to live. <laughs> yeah. This movie, I think, even taps into that a bit because, like, the whole thing... I love, like, whenever Randall has, like, sort of his epiphany moments 
they're just clearly like him looking at the obvious that Dante is not seeing at all. Right. I love that bit at the end where he just says like the oh boo fucking who like we're monkeys we push buttons yeah. <laughs> like this isn't that big a fucking deal and you make it into this big fucking deal because it's all you have basically <laughs> like come on man don't take yourself that fucking seriously <laughs> yeah I mean that's that's an aspect of the movie I, I find so interesting is the way that it is kind of like about guys working minimum wage and it's killing them and it's 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 difficult to sort of pull yourself out from under that kind of lifestyle but also it is a movie that is kind of like but also is it really that hard and is it really like you know and like do you need to take it so seriously all all these things where it's kind of earnestly kind of engaging with what these guys are actually dealing with but also kind of again this is kind of that gen x thing of just like well boohoo like oh well you know and i guess that's kind of the thing where i think this movie is a bit different from like, I think the, not to say like you couldn't make clerks today, but I think if you were to make a movie like this about like working class kind of people, it would kind of focus, I think on some different issues, but that it's an interesting kind of, I think juxtaposition, the way that this movie handles that, right. Of like working minimum wage job, but also like Randall is kind of right about Dante in some ways where like, what's the analogy they use about like, you know, shit or get off the pot, right? Is that, is right. that the one? Right, yeah. Yeah, like that kind of thing, which yeah, he, he has a point. He has kind of a point. And I I think, it, yeah, it's interesting that the, the way the movie kind of does does that kind of thing, I think. That's what really works, is that like this whole movie is kind of like about the malaise that you have from kind of like working that minimum wage job as much as you have. But it's also just kind of pointing out from like all perspectives, like this situation sucks. Because like a convenience store by definition, just, like, a place you want to get in and out of as quick as possible. A quick stop, if you will. Um, That just, like, you don't... No one wants to be here. Even the guy behind the counter doesn't want to be here. The people who are getting, like, whatever, they need their cigarettes or whatnot, are here do it as quickly as possible. So they don't want to hear your long, rambling conversations about how many dicks your girlfriend sucked or how stormtrooper (laughs) contractors work or any of this other bullshit. But... At the same time, you feel that kind of like that endless barrage of like people being acoustic to you is so accurate. Like that montage that happens, just like this coffee's hot. You mean I have to drink this coffee hot? You don't have any ice? Yeah, like stuff like that. <laughs> or my favorite, uh, David Klein, the cinematographer, popping up as the guy who's like, uh, "You got anything?" Oh, Navy Seals at the video store, and then later we're just like, uh, "Hey, do you sell tires here?" Oh, Mini Trucker Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> The guy who the old guy gets spat on uh, by Randall, where you know he's like, "Oh, <laughs> funny thing in newspaper." I forget the exact dialogue; it's been a while, but uh, you know, where he's just kind of like meandering about about. Oh yeah, like the Weekly World News stuff, where like he says, "I believe a uh, yeah, like <laughs> alien revealed as head of Time Warner," and I'm like, "Oh wow, Zaslav well got the job early." Um, <laughs> but. <laughs> Yeah, uh, like just rambling about like the the Daily Inquirer, which I don't even know if Brian knows what this is. Do you have any idea what like the Daily Inquirer was? That's okay. He's gone familiar. to a grocery store. He's gone to a grocery store once in his life. Well, Come no, on but, now. Like, but I don't know if he like is as aware because like this is a thing where basically like it would be a newspaper that was just all the dumb stories, like in Men in Black, where like they showed like the newspapers with like oh Invader has 
come oh. from Mars. It's like, oh, this is all real. Like, that magazine is what he's talking about, basically. Like, that boy and bullshit like that. Okay, okay. Yeah, where it's like, you know, bit. it's like President hiding the cure for cancer or some stupid shit like that. Or, you know, oh, yep. we found out that uh, Tommy Anderson and Pamela Anderson are secret aliens and they're trying to turn your kids into deviants or whatever the fuck. <laughs> yeah. I remember I got an issue of that and I brought it to my elementary school and we had, like, a bomb drill. So we all went, like, to across the school and I was, like, reading it out in the open and my teachers like confiscated it from me. <laughs> like, it's just, I want to find out if Bat Boy returns. I have to know. <laughs> I need to know if the president's a secret Martian, stupid shit like that. But yeah, it's, you know, good times. You know, when you're bothering your parents to get a thing of Reese's and you see a weird cover of like, you know, Hugh Hefner's been secretly dead for three years. <laughs> yeah, Elvis, like Elvis found in <laughs> Elvis like some backwoods exactly. yeah. in Mexico or something. <laughs> Right, yes, yes. right next to girl. Roswell, hanging out with aliens. <laughs> As I believe that was a scene cut from Baz Luhrmann's four-hour version of Elvis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, kind of speaking on like the just the weird customers. Like I, I, I think that part of the working and like customer service job that this or part of the movie that this gets right is like just the weird people that you encounter working in like customer service, like. I mean, like, the the lady with the milks is so, like, that is such a thing I can imagine at, like, any place where you have to, like, sell milks like that, where there's, like, fridges. I'm like, of course someone would, like, check the milks. People are fucking weird. <laughs> like, or, like, right. the guy with the eggs or whatever. Like, just that type of stuff where it's just, like, you, you encounter such weird people working in customer service. And I, I love, I just love that aspect of the movie so much, which is just, like, these, what weird people are you going to encounter next? Yeah, um, especially, like, even the guy who ends up in the bathroom later, the dead, the future dead body, where he's just talking about, like, oh, you know, I I need to use the bathroom, could I uh, get some toilet paper from up front so I can use it back there because of my hemorrhoids and all that? Like, that feels like a dude who I would have encountered if I had this job, I agree. Like, there's that yeah. aspect of it, but also even, like, the awkward thing where it's like, oh, people who you knew from high school come over, like, Rick Darris. Oh, yeah. Who I yeah. love. I love uh, Ernie O'Donnell, who was like Kevin Smith's big uh, sort of like buddy, where he did like all the stage productions with him that they did in high school, and he was like gonna be Dante and stuff like that. But um, he's like so funny, he's just like this asshole trainer dude who's just like, yeah, I knew you from, from high school or whatever. Yeah, the shape. You're, <laughs> you, you're straining <laughs> as you're picking up that milk and stuff like that. That feels also like an accurate thing of like, oh man, when I had, you know, uh, a customer service job in like my hometown and people I knew would come. I was like, Oh, I feel so fucking embarrassed to have you see me here. Just the awkward conversation you have to have of like, Oh, I knew you in high school. Yeah. You were this, you were like that. You were like this. And it, yeah, I, I, I love him too, because he's just like, I'm, well, I'm fucking ripped. Like, look, I'm <laughs> he like, he's the most plain <laughs> man. Like that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like a normal guy and he's like, excuse you, you know, you can't get guns like these. I'm like, oh, okay, buddy. He's like, you could have bench pressed 45 pounds. I'm like, so Dante couldn't bench press the fucking bar without weights on it, basically. <laughs> like, the bare bar. He couldn't lift it up. Like, I don't know. this guy. <laughs> and then it's like this girl who's like easily impressed. Oh, you got muscles. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah I love their yeah. kind of like little back and forth where like he's kind of flirting with her while also like making fun of him and it's working. <laughs> where I'm yes. like, and it's just, it makes <laughs> sense. Where I'm like, of course, like it would work. Like, this asshole guy like wins her over <laughs> it's it's so funny how she just at the end he's like do you want to go out 
get some dinner or something, and then they they go off together. It's it's hilarious. And also, that's an interesting bit of universe building that would come up later, Brian, because that character is she mentions her sister Alyssa, and uh, Alyssa would later be the main love interest in Chasing Amy. Oh, okay. Oh my god, this is so yeah, the lore. So the iceberg is so deep. <laughs> Played by, is it Joey Lawrence Adams? That's her name? Joey Lauren Adams, yes. Lauren Adams, sorry. She is fantastic, by the way. Like, uh, I'm not going to say, like, oh, man, Chasing Amy, you're going to love it, because, it, it, like any other Kevin Smith film, it hasn't aged well, but her performance is still fucking amazing, and she was definitely a childhood crush of mine. So, <laughs> I guess some that, reason, yeah. the, I, for some reason, the voice, too, was just, like, it's like I don't know. Right. It, it, yeah, terrible. But yeah. <laughs> No, no, I get that, yeah, because that's the thing is, um, Smith really likes, even when he, you know, casts, gets Ben Affleck or Matt Damon in his movies, what I like is that a lot of his characters, especially in this, there is distinctive Jersey feel, and this one obviously is the most soaked in it, um, but where, like, New Jersey is such a weird place that, like, is identified as, like, oh yeah, it's kind of like the trashy state right next to New York, but there's, like, a specific kind of flavor that you don't get from, like, say, uh, our neck of the woods in Florida, Brian, it's like it's yeah. this very different, like northeastern flavor that just like works so perfectly where it feels like industrial. Even like the black and white works for like if you go to New Jersey, there's so many like giant fucking power plants spewing fucking smoke into the air. It feels like you're in a black and white space. I mean, yeah, when you go to New Jersey, your vision just like turns black and white, basically. Right, that's true. And like yeah, when I saw Kevin Smith, I've never seen him in color. In person. <laughs> <laughs> Like when you watch The Sopranos, and it's like, how come all the colors are dull and it looks depressing? It's because you're in fucking New Jersey. That's why. You know, it's a similar yeah. thing when you watch a lot of movies set around my neck of the woods. I'm from Southeast Massachusetts, so it, it might as well just be like a huge stamp that just says the Northeast. So it's like they're all the same. It's just their accents are slightly more annoying than each other in different fucking ways. So you know. speaking on the kind of the of the black and white, like I will say, you you were kind of earlier, uh, Thomas, talking about like Kevin Smith's kind of inept ineptness ineptitude fuck i can't think of it we'll go with ineptitude um, i think that yeah. works out yeah you need to open a thesaurus for like all the transition words that are in this movie <laughs> right <laughs> malaise uh denouement um harbinger <laughs> yeah harbinger uh rigmarole i don't know <laughs> I don't, this movie helped me out with my sats and i'm not even kidding <laughs> oh shit god um but just like his like technical like inept, you know how he doesn't really know anything about cameras, doesn't know a lot about like that kind of stuff. But like, I, I think this movie looks gorgeous, and especially compared to like Clerks two and three, which Clerks three looks fine. I would say Clerks two looks awful, like just horrendous. But like the the black and white footage here looks so like gorgeous and just so like there's such a texture to it, um, with it being kind of just you know, this early, like, this 90s indie scene, which, uh, you know, of course reminds me of, like, the, like, Jim Jarmusch's early movies or something like that. Just the, I, I don't know, the the black and white in this movie I just find so gorgeous. And, like, for an example, the scene which you mentioned earlier, the, the Tori, the, um, where they're fighting and the way that, like, the candy is kind of strewn about. And I'm like, I, I don't know, there's something, like, poetic about it with, like, the black and white photography. It just looks so gorgeous, I think. Or even, like, my favorite, in terms of, like, an actual, the way that, like, a scene looks is, like, the bit where James and Bob are dancing outside in the middle of the night. 
Oh, yeah. And, like, the way it's specifically lit by, like, the one light that's outside in front of the quick stop. Yeah. And it's perfect. just, like, the way they're cascaded. <laughs> it looks kind of perfect, yeah. And they're yeah. just, like, white people dancing. They're just, like, it's it's like that meme where it shows, like, the goths doing, like, the, uh, uh, and they're, like, doing all the fucking arm <laughs> motions or whatever the fuck. <laughs> Which, so, I that was another scene yeah. where, like, Muse was so nervous about, like, I don't want to dance in front of people. They're going to make fun of me. Kevin Smith had David Klein turn on the camera, start recording, and then everyone left and went inside the quick stop <sighs> while they danced. <laughs> Oh yeah. shit! I think that's what they did with. Uh, I guess what they referenced in three. I think they did reference that in three. Yeah. Actually, yes. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a lot oh, of the behind yeah. the scenes stuff. Shockingly, became <laughs> big set pieces in Clerks Three. <laughs> no, it's not meta at all. You say <laughs> meta? And, you know, what kind of hacks are, are we talking about here? We're talking about the great art tour, Kevin Smith. <laughs> From the man who never goes up his own ass at all in any of his productions whatsoever. In, in, you know, two people who share like a dubious honor, like when it comes to like ineptitude, when it comes to uh, like filming and camera angles and shit like that. I used to always make this very uh, probably not aged so well joke about uh, Tyler Perry basically being Kevin Smith for me people, where it's just poorly shot movies, no technical prowess or ability whatsoever. But there's like a charm to it that makes people want to keep coming back. I'm sure Kevin Smith wishes he had the box office success of a Tyler Perry, you know, catalog, but, uh, you know, they're both terrible from a technical standpoint, <laughs> as far as how everything is shot. What are you talking about? The Medea makeup is always consistent, Tori, especially in later <laughs> films after they're successful. Oh, God, dude, I haven't seen since uh, I can do bad all myself, which to me, I was like, you know what? This is as good as it's going to get. I'm not quite, I'm not sticking for a ride. I'm hopping off. I'm hopping off the train here. No, I've seen his White House set, though, in many TV shows of recent. Oh, God, no. <laughs> I've seen some of those, too. <laughs> but yeah, just like the, uh, I, I don't know, just it, it, it's, it's weird how they have like such, such similarities for different audiences. It's just like, because you were saying earlier about Clerks 2 looking bad. I don't even know if Clerks 2 just looks bad. It just looks very basic. You know what yeah. I mean? And the thing about Clerks 1, it's not basic. Clerks 3 brings some of that magic back and does a better job from a technical aspect. But it's 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 like you mentioned Jim Jarmusch earlier. Like It has that coffee and cigarettes look to it. That really nice black and white look to it. Yeah. It doesn't look like it's done for, even though technically it was done for reasons to cheap up, to kind of cheap out on the production, it ends up looking <laughs> the most distinct out of, even compared to the other two movies, or even other movies in Kevin Smith's uh, filmography. So it's like, you know, it just, it pops, you know, it looks good, which it's, it's the disappointing thing about Clerks 2 is that it doesn't look as good. No, I think that's the problem with, like, the later Smith movies is, like, the more of a budget he has, the more his technical ineptitude really, like, is on display. Like, even right. with, like, right after this is Mallrats, which is a universal production, costs $6 million, there's a lot more of, like, those two shots. And it's, so, like, with that bigger budget, it kind of just, like, puts you at a distance, as opposed to, like, this, or Chasing Amy, which was only made for, like, around $300,000, like, there's more of this kind of, like, authentic kind of grime to it that feels like they're kind of, like, working off the seat of their pants, which is much more charming than, like, when you get to even as low budget as, like, a yoga hosers is. Like, the moment Smith uses, like, CG or practical effects, it's like, no, man, don't, don't do that. <laughs> don't, don't do that at all. <laughs> for, for those listening, Tori is putting his hoodie up and crossing his arms in shame. Yeah, his head is down on his desk like he's like asleep during class. <laughs> yes. 
Oh man. Hashtag fast colors texting. <laughs> Why do you keep reminding me of this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know what? While we're talking about like the other sort of Kevin Smith movies in his future, we should probably address the elephant in the room here. We haven't really mentioned the name of this company that Disney owned distributed this movie. Of, yeah. Um, yeah, so the sort of life cycle of Clerks is like after it gets finished, they premiere it at like the independent film forum that's over in New York, and it is sparsely attended, not a lot of people, you know, Smith thinks like, oh, it's all over. But there's one critic in there, Bob Hawk, who sees it and spreads it around to all his critic friends, and then it ends up getting the attention of some people who work at Miramax. I should note, specifically John Gordon, who was the assistant to... Harvey Weinstein. Mm. Yep. And Miramax uh, at the time. Interestingly, John Gordon, who was like his assistant, like saw a tape of this and was like, oh my God, we should pick this up. And he pitched it to Harvey. It's like, yeah, we should totally pick up this movie. And Harvey was like, no, there's no point in doing that. We're not going to pick that up. And now until the Sundance premiere, where everyone was actually buzzing about it, did Harvey like go full bore into uh, you know distributing the movie. And... Harvey Weinstein is a guy who I mainly knew because of, like, the Kevin Smith angle of it, where in the early days, Kevin Smith talked a lot about how, you know, working with Miramax under Harvey Weinstein, he was given a lot of free reign to do, like, his small little movies, and they were, like, working partners all the way until, like, Zack and Miriam make a porno, which was supposed to be a big mainstream hit, and then fell apart, and then Smith kind of distanced himself at that time, you know. Not the main reason you should have cut ties with Harvey Weinstein, but uh, yeah, it is. It's a big part of this movie's legacy, and even just '90s independent film in general. Where like this particular time, where you had had like you know Robert Rodriguez with El Mariachi and Quentin Tarantino with Reservoir Dogs, and particularly Pulp Fiction around the same time. Like Miramax was a big facet in getting like indie movies to become mainstream for this point. Uh, so you know. It's a part of our history we have to look at, even if we don't want to. In a wider sense, what I find so fascinating about this era of, like, Disney, as we're kind of talking about the Miramax Disney side of things, is that, like, Disney bought Miramax for $60 million, right, in the early 90s. It's weird to me now, looking back, to think that Disney bought Miramax to kind of break into this kind of weird indie market that was kind of you know, coming up, it's so weird to think about that now where like Disney doesn't make movies like this, doesn't really put out as many movies like this at all. And if they do, they're straight to streaming or they're through like the fucking Fox, sorry, not Fox, uh, Century Pictures or Century Studios or whatever. Um, Yeah, it's just so weird to think of a time when Disney was kind of interested in auteur indie cinema like this. Though I think a big reasoning is because around this time is where you have the weird poster man of Disney at this time, Michael Eisner, running the company. Yeah. Wanted to diversify that portfolio while saying hello to you on the wonderful world of Disney <laughs> every night. Um, just I, I think that could only come from somebody like that who had come from more like Paramount and stuff like that. It's just like, we have to diversify, you know, our output. We can't just rely on, like, the Disney Renaissance movies. We have to have Disney sort of cover every single facet. This was, like, a key point because, like, this is, like, 94. 
So we're in peak Disney Renaissance. Lion King also comes out this year. Stuff like that. So Disney at this point is like truly unfurling the tentacles that would become this like giant octopus that we have now. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. And Clerks is a little tiny part of that history. (laughs) Weird. Very weird. It's uh, one suction. Maybe half of one suction. I don't don't know. Yeah. (laughs) One suction. Not enough to have Jay and Silent Bob at Disney World, unfortunately. (laughs) Which we all would have wanted. Right. I would have wanted to take a picture with a big Jan Silent Bob. I'm imagining yes. a family of like just Disney people, and then the kids are like, oh, Jay and Silent Bob, yay! Like at the, at the theme park. <laughs> Kylo Ren, ugh, get out of here. Get out of the way, Kylo Ren. Out of the way, Beast from Beauty and the Beast. I want to stand by the Jay and Silent Bob uh, mascots that look like their cartoon counterparts. They, you know, you're not going <laughs> to... Which would be a good idea, honestly. Have them be their version of the animated series. It's, you know, Disney owns that. You might as well make a... Yeah. <laughs> Interesting fact about that. If you listen to the commentaries for Clerks the Animated Series, like the main animation person at one point is talking with like Kevin Smith and Scott Mosier and all those people. Because like this is right after the show got canceled and they're like very bitter. And there's just a certain point where it's like, I don't know, man. Like, you know what? Promote your new thing. It's like, I don't know if it's going to work. I like, promote your new thing. No, you're working with Disney again, right? You're going to do a new show. It's like, all right, yeah, everyone. Uh, Kim Possible premiering in 2002. Yeah. And you can tell, like, the, the animation style is not dissimilar from, like, Kim Possible. It's not. Yeah. There's a lot of similarities. No. Yep. You can see that. More stylized and there's more money in it. But, uh, yeah, you can definitely see the similarities. That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it was like, fine, this Kim Possible show. It will never last. 20 years later. <laughs> it will never last. Cold never last stone, as we all know. <laughs> right, a touchstone. Hey, another Disney <laughs> subsidiary that was making yeah. movies around this time. Imagine. Imagine yeah. if we still had touchstone. God. Imagine. No. Hey, everybody. Uh, this is Thomas here with a little correction to what I would have just said in the episode here. I mentioned that Michael Eisner was very instrumental in the purchase of Miramax by Disney in 1993, but uh, since this recording, I read a bit more in the uh, Disney War book that I've been reading and uh, was shocked to find out that actually that was Jeffrey Katzenberg's idea. He was the one that uh, was very instrumental in getting the Weinsteins to uh, have Miramax bought by Disney, and Michael Eisner was actually very much against it, and it was one of the main factors that contributed to him wanting to have Katzenberg leave the studio in the mid-90s. So, my bad, but let's go back to the regular episode. So, like, through the Miramax of it all and everything, this movie becomes very popular, and Kim Smith starts on his journey. Now, Brian, this is where we give you a corner. Because I gave you the interesting <laughs> task of like, you know, because you like to do watch other things in relation to whatever we're talking about. And so you were like, I don't know, you said that this is like a universe thing and all those movies connect. Where do I even start? How far do I go? And I thought of the brilliant idea of having you as our guinea pig to see if uh, someone just watched Clerks, Clerks 2, and Clerks 3 to see how that would just work as an independent trilogy without any of that connective tissue in between. So you watched Clerks 2 and 3 in prep for this as well. Uh, So how was that experience of going through (laughs) those three movies? Well, on a base level, it's weird, one, just because, like, Clerks is a movie very rooted in the 90s and in 90s culture so deeply, as we've talked about. And then Clerks 2 is is the 2000s and that's just like a completely different world basically for like pop culture and just kind of like 
nerd culture in general. And for Clerks 3 is also weird because it's, it came out last year. Another interesting time for pop culture and nerd culture and also like pandemic is, you know, all that stuff. But yeah. And it, this was interesting because like what I presented to you or what I had said to you was like, I don't really know Kevin Smith. So yeah, like what should I do? And watching this, I, I said this to you before, I think I got a great sense of like his career trajectory of Clerks one being this very scrappy indie movie. And that is like, there's a lot of just very, earnest and very you can tell he put his, his heart and soul into this movie and then there's clerks 2 um <laughs> which i really did not like clerks 2 at all we, we, we kind of mentioned earlier how we, it doesn't feel as authentic and natural as clerks 1 for a lot of reasons i think for one is the way it looks but two i think so many of the jokes have aged even worse than clerks 1 and also i think just so much of what I dislike about I, I very much dislike Clerks too. It, it feels like the antithesis of what the first Clerks is trying to be about in so many ways. I, although I will say Rosario Dawson is fucking the MVP in that movie. Like any scene she's in, I'm like, this is is this a good movie actually? Um, <laughs> and then Clerks three is so weird. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we, we talked about that a little bit before, but like, a truly bizarre movie, and I, I can't even really figure it out right now. I, I just watched it today, but it, it's such a weird journey. I, I'm very curious to hear you guys' thoughts on Clerks Two, especially kind of as you guys kind of you know you live through Clerks Two. <laughs> um, we yeah, survived but, the Clerks Two Wars of 2006. Yeah, so, so I'm, I'm curious, kind of what your guys kind of thoughts are on clerks 2 my whole thing like clerks 2 because of like the weird kind of place i have in it when when i saw it it was like it was the first kevin smith movie i saw in the theater i was like Mm -hmm. very much in the hype i watched the back to the well video shorts that he put out on early youtube that were all about like the making of this movie like i was extensive like when i went to the signing it was uh back in like 2005 it was after he had wrapped production and it was still called the passion of the clerks this is right after Passion of the Christ. Okay. That was almost the title of this fucking movie. Weird. Um, <laughs> weird. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think I agree with you that the three movies kind of are firmly rooted in their time and place. There's like, even yeah. in Clerks 3, they reference NFTs, firmly <sighs> oh, dating man. it in 2022. Yeah. Um, but even like a, a Clerks 2, there's a whole back and forth about like Star Wars versus Lord of the Rings and shit like that. <sighs> Where even when I was younger and, like, I was more of a Star Wars kid, I still just thought, like, I don't know, this feels like a a comedy skit that's going on too long. Um, To a degree that, like, that whole thing about, like, the description of Lord of the Rings is, like, lifted beat for beat from, like, one of his evening with specials where he would just, like, talk in front of colleges, basically. Like, on an evening with Kevin Smith, I think, too, he does that whole Lord of the Rings bit. Um, he does that a lot, where, like, bits from podcasts and stuff will show up in movies. Um, and when you're in too deep like I am, it's just, like, I recognize, say, if someone's ringtone is a theme from a podcast or some bullshit, it's like, yep, I know that. I'm too ingrained into this. Um, but, but yeah, I think Clerks 2, for that reason, it does feel very much like a comedy from 2006. Which is to say, like, plenty of jokes that don't hold up very well. Like, especially Randall in that movie, where, like, the contrast between him being 
in his 20s and like kind of like this, oh, this charming rascal yeah. that like is working this low-wage job but has some perspective on what he is versus he's like even more so than in the first fucking Clerks. But homophobic, racist, kind of like predatory as well. Yeah, the comments there's... he makes about like underage women. Yeah, like I was that. like, oh, this is weird. <laughs> right. There's almost like an interesting commentary that he could make about like, oh, a guy who's working in like customer service this deep would be like this embittered and awful and shitty but he's also kind of the hero still because he's the one that ultimately makes the resolution of like this whole movie that seems to be about like oh like growing up and moving on beyond what you were and then the ending is like let's buy the place that where we used to work and spend our eternity here yeah it It is truly like so antithetical to the first movie on it is yeah and i think because clerks one does like have to engage with like how kind of shitty these guys are in a way, especially Randall. And in the first movie, it does kind of feel like he is this asshole guy who like you're friends with him and like, you don't know why, but he's just fun to be around. And yeah, he's kind of like gets you into trouble a lot, but like he's fun. And in, in clerks too, it's like, he really is just awful. Like, and not really in a fun way at all to me, at least like, I, I just find him so, kind of repulsive in Clerks 2 to the point where like when the movie gets kind of serious and has to kind of acknowledge what is happening I just kind of roll my eyes at it because I'm just like but you've presented this guy as like the most unlikable person and uh, yeah I, I, I just didn't like that which is kind of a turn for Clerks 3 which we'll get to in a minute like I, I did like kind of his character in that in, in Clerks 3 and I thought it was more certainly way more interesting and more like had more depth to it, had more, like, layers to it, which I find interesting, but, yeah, Clerks 2, not great, um, I love seeing Ben, my, my Zoom background is, is, is Ben, Ben Affleck in it, um, I was really yep. happy to see him, um, one of his but, two cameos is also in showing up in Clerks 3, he's, <laughs> he's really good in Clerks 3 as well, I really <laughs> like that cameo, he's really funny, yeah, I don't know, but, 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 yeah, Tori, please, come to, come to the defense of Clerks 2, <laughs> If you can. Well, I mean, like, here's the thing, man. Like, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that a movie where one of the characters says at one point, barely legal pussy is a movie that you need to, like, leave right now from listening to this podcast to go listen to. Because you fucking shouldn't. Okay? But (laughs) here's what I will say. When it comes to Clerks 2, I think one theme that it does a really good job of, maybe not it's a theme. You, You know, there's the part where, you know, it's kind of thrown into their faces that you are guys in your 30s still kind of working a dead-end job where, you know, Jason Lee goes in and kind of yeah. just throws in their face where he was like, I'm a guy who was a loser in high school and now I'm a fucking dot-com millionaire, Bob, basically, which was like the closest thing to an NFT at that point in time or whatever. Yeah. It's like right. fucking 2005. <laughs> the thing that I liked about this movie, which I, I kind of criticize a lot of people who critique it in this way, where they make it seem like it's a bad thing that they own their own business at the end, that they're still in their hometown at the end, that they're still them at the end. Because despite all the over the top shit that happens in this movie, that kind of distracts from that point. It's kind it's a okay to still live like a life where maybe you never do leave your hometown. Maybe you in somehow, some way still end up in a dead end job. It doesn't make you less valid of a person. And I like that. I like that it kind of even I didn't need a fucking donkey show in the middle of it all, but 
I like that part of the movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it, it, <laughs> it's like that sort of thing throws me off there, but it's like, yeah, because there's still, and I would still defend that Clerks 2 still has a charm and it has something that leads you to a more satisfying conclusion than three's kind of bittersweetness. You know what I mean? Three might do a better job with the bittersweetness of its story than Clerks 2 is trying to do with telling a hopeful story. But I think at the time, like, you got to look at it as Clerks 1 was kind of representative of, like, Gen X in the 90s, sort of like that MTV generation in the 90s. This was a reflection of the MTV generation in 2005, and it sucked. Like, you ever watched Laguna Beach? It was shit. (laughs) MTV was effectively killing music. It wasn't even the same anymore. You know what I mean? Like, to me, it's just a reflective of how mediocre 2005 and 2006 truly were as, like, years and, like, art film whatever the fuck you want to uh, uh, pigeonhole it as or whatever and I think Clerks 2 does a good job of representing that time with all of the shit that it shows which <laughs> from the asshole conversation about uh, Lord of the Rings that 15 year old me definitely laughed their ass off at mm-hmm. to the the slur scene with Wanda Sykes and uh, I forgot the guy who played uh, I think it's husband. Earthquake is the name of that comedian yeah right? Yeah, Earthquake, yeah. that's right, that's right. You know, which, to me, again, I definitely laughed my ass off at, but I was also a teenager. <laughs> so, it's like, just the, the, the way that, because to me personally, like, you know, just to be honest with you guys, I kind of found Randall more insufferable in the third movie than I did ever in the, in the second one. Oh. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, more on that later. But just like, I, I guess I just, at the end of the day, despite the fact that I didn't like the fucking zigzag left turns and, and, and weird fucking areas it went into, I think the overall message of you're still a, you're a working class guy, but you got your own little piece of the pie now. You're about to have a child with your beautiful wife and your friend might actually mature and get off his own ass and find some happiness in his life too. You know, that even though he's 35 and he's still a miserable old ass nerd, Maybe he won't be 40 or 45 until a miserable old-ass nerd. He'll have something. You know what I mean? And that's okay. You know, that's what I like clerks to, like, overall. You know what I mean? It's flawed, but, you know, you guys are right. I'm not saying you guys are wrong. <laughs> I just see it a little bit <laughs> for obvious reasons. But I just see that they were still a beauty to it, you know, even with all the ugly. Yeah, I think the trouble is just that, like, Kevin Smith, where he was at that point, because I also have the context of, like, the movies and all that stuff he'd made up to that point. Like, you can, there's that kind of malaise that certain directors talk about, of, like, after a certain point, you don't have anything original to say, necessarily, because, like, with Kevin Smith, like, he had his run where he made very personal movies about, like, you know, his working at the minimum wage job, or his frustrations about his sexual past with, like, Jason Amy, or his religious background with Dogma. By the fifth movie, Jane Song, Bob Strike Back, he's going full into himself, where it's all about, like, his universe that he's built, and the characters, and, like, reverencing and winking and nodding. So I know you'll love it, Brian. It's a lot of, like, universe <laughs> winking and nodding. Um, it's, it's the origin point before the MCU could, would do it later. Oh, um, so then he tried to break off with, like, a Jersey Girl, 2004. Everyone hates it, because Jennifer Lopez is also in it. And it's at peak Benefer like, hatred right. at that particular point. Um, and then he kind of, like, you know, circles back to doing, like, a Clerks 2, and it does kind of feel like he's going back to this well, um, but at the same time, like, I would love a lot of aspects about the ending of a Clerks 2, if not for, like, the 90 or so minutes preceding it, 
where not just like Randall being awful, but even Dante, where it's like, you're about to leave with this woman you've been engaged to, and like you're gonna get married in a couple months. And then like all this shit springs up. It's like, I don't know, man, none of these guys seem like guys I wanna follow anymore necessarily. Yeah. I will say, like, I what you were saying, Tori, about like them owning the business at the end. I, I, I actually do like that reading as kind of a, the ending of, of Clerks Two because, like, I may have kind of cynically viewed it. I think as like, oh, he's just kind of doing the same thing over again, but kind of with a more where where it felt natural that they were going back to the store in Clerks 1, that they're there, it feels very natural and everything. In Clerks 2, it feels like this very, like, forced thing, and feels very fan service as well. But, but yeah, no, I, I like the kind of hopeful reading, I think, because it, it is, like, it, it does make me, I think, dislike Clerks 3 a bit more, because of how, I, I think, some of the things that that movie does, but I, I will also agree with you, Thomas, like, so much of Clerks 2 is, is very bad, and there are, I think, moments in it that I find really interesting, but, like, I don't like any of it at all, but, yeah. But, but yeah, but, but then getting into, like, a Clerks 3, yeah. which is, like you said, wild. Even as someone who has all this background about Kevin Smith, it's wild, and as for you, who had only seen two movies prior, it is yeah. such, like, a strange movie to, like, kind of have the conclusion of these characters were just up spoilers. If you haven't seen this movie, cause it's fairly recent, um, them pulling what was the original ending of clerks with Dante dying, not in a convenience store robbery gone wrong, like in the original ending, but here having him die from like this heart attack that like is built up is like very clearly Kevin Smith kind of dealing with the stuff about his heart attack, obviously. Yeah. But like the whole movie is, but it also is just, like, such a weird structural thing where, like, Randall has his heart attack in the first act, right. so then Dante has to have one in the third act. It's weird. I think it's kind of like the inverse problem of, like, a Clerks 2 to me, where, like, I was oddly enjoying myself throughout most of this movie, and then this character who we followed for 30 years dies after a whole movie where it's like, oh, hey, my wife who was pregnant with my daughter died in a car crash, like, six months after that ending in Clerks 2. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like he is like wallowing yeah. in misery and regret and pain, and then uh, he dies. Yeah, it, it it's such a weird movie. I mean, like for for one, like the two heart attacks thing is so weird, and especially I love like the doctor who's like, if you eat like him and you guys hang out, then you're gonna do for a heart attack. And I'm like in my head, I'm just thinking like, oh, she's probably just saying that because like she's a doctor, whatever. I'm not thinking like, oh, he's gonna have a heart attack in like. 45 minutes or something it's so bizarre and yet i i do find that there is a charm to the like the movie recreation part of this of of clerks three right i i find it to be the most interesting way that this move that they kind of are doing the self-referential kevin smith up his own ass kind of thing I, i actually kind of like it and i find it to be really charming and i find it to be like when this movie is at its best (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I'm curious to hear you guys, how you guys feel about, about clerks theory in general. I'll say this about clerks theory. Um, part of my, part of my life and, and Tom knows a little bit about it. Cause when it came out, I yeah. was going through some shit. Um, I suffered a big loss in my life and this movie kind of helped me kind of get through the whole bittersweetness with 
even though I found it forced because the whole thing, like 45 minutes later, getting another heart attack, I'm like, dude, the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> like, Clerks 3 might be my least favorite one. For, it's like a double edged sword. There's parts where I really love this movie, really love the charm, really love how it deals with things like death, getting older, coping, dealing with shit. I needed yeah, that I at that moment in my life. But as a movie, though, like, you know, Tom mentioned Jersey Girl earlier. I fucking love Jersey Girl, by the way. Jersey Girl <laughs> is a flawed but beautiful story of fatherhood, specifically single fatherhood. Like, that dynamic was so beautiful that I was looking forward to seeing something like that in Crooks 3 between Dante and his kid or his grown daughter or something like that. And the first five seconds that gets ripped out of my fucking chest and my heart gets ripped out immediately because I'm like, wait, yeah. she's dead? What the fuck? fuck what did you what are we doing right now like what am i watching right now i almost wanted to walk out the theater because i was like this is really because uh, i was really looking forward to seeing sort of like a parent child dynamic that i think he has not really explored in his career minus years ago excuse me someone forgot about jay and silent bob reboot where his own daughter plays jay's daughter and they have such a great never- father-daughter dynamic that's really authentic <laughs> Uh, dude, I've never seen Reboot. I don't know if I should see Reboot. I'm probably going to see Reboot eventually. You want to see Jay and Silent Bob strike back, but less funny? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> but, like, it, it's weird because it's, like, it does, it deals with the thing that, like, coping with loss and bittersweetness so fucking well. But yeah. I just, still at the end, it's like, you're telling me Dante deserved that ending? I don't know if Dante deserved that. Either. I agree. And that's the thing. I just, I can't, I can't drive with that, but everything else was so good. It's like the opposite of clerks Two, where there's stuff I liked, but there's stuff I didn't like, but the ending gave me like a feeling of hope. This one here gave me a feeling of bittersweetness that felt real because this happens to you in life. You suffer losses. You have to deal with them. You have to move on. You have to keep living. But at the same time, it just felt like I was getting just, beat with that to the point where it's like why did Dante deserve this epic after everything we've gone through? Why this epic? You survived your heart attack, Kevin. You survived it. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> and like you were saying, I, like my favorite part of Clerks 2, I think the thing I think about the m- most fondly when I think about that movie is like the dynamic between um, Dante and Rosario Dawson's character which I actually think is like very sweet and very romantic and very, I love them in that little like office in Quirks too, just the, the talk that they have. And like, I, I also was like, Oh, okay. And this one, he's going to have like a kid maybe. And it's going to be like, they're going to get married. They're going to be married, whatever. And yeah, not having that, I think is very, it feels a bit like the rug has been pulled out from under you for me, especially. Cause I just like, I watch clerks too took an hour long break and then watch clerks three. Like I didn't have the kind of like real time, you know, right. Um, you watched a one, two and three, like a yeah. normal person would think to do, but like the having Rosario Dawson, like do the, the, the sort of like dream sequences in, in clerks three, which I also found like really sweet and really human. And like, is it Tori like dealing with like death and like, the loss of a loved one in a way where I was like, oh, wow, this is, I was not expecting this from Kevin Smith, who is like, I don't know, Kirk's one is like, poop, fart, shit, dick, joke. Like, that's the movie, kind of, in a lot of ways. Um, 
poopy dick jokes and slurs. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I wasn't expecting that. And I liked those bits. I, I really liked the scenes with her, with him and Rosario Dawson, mainly just cause I think she is like such a great actor. She's like punching so much above her weight being in a Kevin Smith movie. No offense, Kevin Smith, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I, weird. Weird. I think, yeah, a big part of that also was that he had originally wanted Rosario in it more, but it was definitely like, a, I don't have a lot of time available to like be throughout the whole movie kind of thing. Right. So it feels kind of like a, you know, a necessity kind of deal with like having her in as limited a capacity as she is. Um, but I think also another thing, I kind of referenced this earlier, the kind of dynamic that Smith has with like Randall and Dante is it feels like as these movies evolve, Dante becomes like what he thinks of himself if he had like never made a movie and probably just yeah. kept being at quick stop at a convenience for like the rest of his life versus Randall is the more adventurous person who decides like, you know what, I'm going to make a movie at the quick stop and it's going to work. And Dante is like glass half empty guy who is just constantly thinking like, I don't know that's going to work guy. So the movie is basically Kevin Smith killing off that version of himself which is weird to think about you're just like that guy who would have stayed there and been bitter and hateful about life that guy's dead and it's like but i don't know dante just didn't want to be there that day he wasn't supposed to be there that day i mean i will say like yeah that aspect of it of like kevin smith kind of like that really personal angle to it I think I, I I don't know something about it was really gripping to me in a way, e- even though it is so weird and wild. Um, there's something about just that, yeah, the way that he's kind of like exploring himself, and the way that these movies are kind of like these movies are him. Like Clerks is him, obviously, because of like it, it's where he got to start and everything. And it, it, that part's interesting to me, even though the decisions this movie makes are wild and I don't really think the ending is, is good, but it's fascinating. You know, it's fascinating to think about in that way. Yeah. I'm sure you loved all the jokes that were references to other things that you didn't get. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) yeah. There's a lot of jokes in these where I was like, I don't think I get that. I'll ask Thomas about that. (laughs) (laughs) Tom, where did they get that money from to save the quick stop? They reference a movie. (laughs) <laughs> well, you see, in the uh, dense continuity of the Fusk universe, uh, Jay and Silent Bob were uh, turned into superhero characters Bluntman and Chronic, who were in a comic, and then that of turned course. into a film by Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, as we all know, as is very clear in the lore of the Fusk universe. Yeah, after this, Thomas is gonna he's gonna explain the Fusk uh, universe to me, like like that Charlie Day picture from It's Always Sunny, where he's just like. <sighs> So Mallrats yeah, takes so. first in the continuity because it takes place the day before Clerks does. Uh, and then Chasing Amy takes place a couple years after. <laughs> so the funeral scene in Clerks 1 where you just see them running away from a funeral home and people are chasing them out. Listen, that's that's from a death that happens technically in Mallrats. It's the day before. Dude, <laughs> fucking stupid. It's yes, a dumbass literally. universe. This is this universe is so stupid. Like, actually, like, no shit. This is one of the first things I got from old YouTube. One of the first things I saw in old YouTube was... The because uh, you remember that scene from the first one from the first Clerks movie the uh, the scene where he goes to the funeral to see Julia or whatever and yeah her name is Julia and then they run out like they animated that entire sequence in the style of the Clerks cartoon you could probably find it on YouTube for free with like no issues whatsoever yeah. they it's called Clerks Lost or Clerks Deleted scene basically 
And it features all the uh, characters, people who, who would be in Mallrats, people who would be in Chasing Amy. They feature their characters as well. And uh, it's actually really fun. It's actually a good thing to watch. That that is it. I don't I, I don't know if I could sit here and justify we tell somebody uh go see Mallrats and I love Mallrats. But or to go and see any of these like universe fucking movies because it's like I don't know, I feel like it's gonna be like hit or miss and I don't wanna waste anybody's time. I, I am curious, Brian, did like did seeing these three movies give you any interest in filling in the blanks? It did. It did. Um I mean I mean I'm definitely interested in Kevin Smith way more than I've ever been. Um, and actually watching his movies. Cause like, I, I mentioned this to you earlier, Thomas, like I, I really want to watch the, him and the, the collaborations him and Ben Affleck have done together because I, I love Ben right. Affleck and I think he's such a fascinating actor and has a, a fascinating career for another time as well. But like, I, I am fascinated by him in a weird way. And I'm fascinated by like his later era movies. Like I'm fascinated by Tusk because I, I haven't seen it obviously, but I remember that movie coming out and it being an early A24 release. And it was like, yep, me, little like 16 year old film nerd. I'm like, oh, this, this A24 company, they're pretty cool. <laughs> Versus my, my contrast is like, at that time, that is like me at peak burnout, Kevin Smith, where like I saw Tusk in the theater. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. I'm, I think I'm done for now. <laughs> For me, it's like Cop Out sucked, but it's like I he didn't write it, so I didn't really put that right. on him because I felt like anybody right. could have directed Cop Out. And then when I saw Red State, I was like, okay, you made a decent horror thriller weird thing, but like, why didn't you do this in like 2002? It just felt like a waste of fucking time. So it's like when Tuss was out, I was like, whatever. I was just kind of like, I'll see it when I see it. And it took me eight years to finally fucking see it because, you know, this guy here makes me see fucking yoga hosers. And made me completely, I lost faith in my religion because of that movie. Okay, I was just like, you know what, before it was like, sure, he just makes mid shit. I can forgive mid. Mid can have charm. But when it's like so bad, so bafflingly bad, that I just never want to see anyone make an impression of Sylvester Stallone ever again without wanting to violently punch them in the nose. Like... (laughs) It's it's like no, I don't want to see you anymore. Get out of my house. Done. You know what I mean. And you know, eventually, like I said, I saw Tusk. I wish he would take his filmmaking more seriously because I think Tusk could have been a good horror film. But you'll see it for yourself. But yeah, it, it, it's just like there's moments in time when the first third, I'm like, this is a this might be his best movie. It's that fucking good. And then the two thirds happen. So (laughs) that is the thing. It is interesting kind of tracking his career and sort of the weird history of like theatrical comedy, because he's kind of there for like the indie boom, as we mentioned with like a clerks and then having like, say a Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, like having big people Mm -hmm. like in his like smaller movies. And then he kind of tries to make a bigger bet for mainstream with like Jersey girl or Zach Amir make a porno try and do, like, at the peak of, like, the Apatow period. Weirdly, a period very clearly inspired by, like, a Clerks and yeah. what he had done previously. Um, and then as that kind of, like, waning bit of the comedy theatrically falls short, he goes on, like, the A24 horror train, like an early adopter of that. Um, and then eventually now to where, like, he plays, like, his movies rarely play, like, mainstream cinemas anymore because he just has his roadshow thing that he is able to, like call all of his fans together so they can like make up whatever costs 
on like yeah. his movies. It's weird. It's like seeing that kind of journey from like this indie movie plays at an art house to come to the Kevin Smith event where we will also show a movie. <laughs> I mean, it, part of me does have to just kind of respect him that he is able to like, even as his like film career has kind of like waned a bit. Like I, I kind of respect that he's able still to, yeah, like you said, like be like, Hey, I'm going to do a talk at this thing. And, like, people will show up, and, like, he'll have this crowd of, like, people who love him or admire him in some way, and, like, he's got that following, he's got that audience, and I think, like, I don't know, there's, like, I, I respect him for that, at least. Yeah, for sure, sort of, like, his uh, ability to, like, gain a cold audience and, like, have that factor, like, that was the weird thing that, like, endeared my dad to him, because after Clerks 2... When I dragged my dad to that, he was almost in like a like I don't know if you should like keep watching this guy's stuff. Fourteen year old Tom, that doesn't seem like a good thing you should do anymore. Um, and then later that like September, um, he did like a talk in uh, Orlando, and I just begged like we gotta go. I gotta see him talk, and I asked him a question and everything. It was a big moment for me. Um, but he talked a lot about sort of like the struggles in making you know, the first clerks with just like how the $27,000 and like kind of barely making this together. My dad appreciated the scrappiness, I guess, of him being able to do that. Um, I loved also when he did that, like the, there was a backdrop that was made. It looked like the quick stop and RST video that was like behind him. And he was like, holy fuck, this never happens. Like usually (laughs) there's just like a fucking curtain behind me. You guys made like a backdrop. (laughs) This is impressive. A thing I find interesting about him is like, like he's he's always gonna have that audience, but like, I don't think he's gonna attract like new people to come to him. Like, I don't think Gen Z is gonna be like, we love Kevin Smith. Like, it, it's an interesting thing where he's gonna have that audience and they're gonna and they'll support him and he's gonna be like doing his thing and like, yeah, it's just fascinating to to think about and look at just him and what he's what he is now. I think. No, yeah, for sure. I mean, me and Tori, I think, are in a similar boat where even though we have whatever troubles and tribulations about any Kevin Smith project, we're still kind of going to watch whatever he does no matter what. It won't be immediately upon release, but at some point, it's like, yeah, I'll catch up with that. Right. I don't know. There's just a weird attachment we have to him at this point where we can't not at some point. <laughs> you can't shake the habit. We're just, like, we're just kind of like, uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I, I need my dose of Kevin Smith or all. <laughs> I need to relapse. It's like sometimes you just like, even if you quit smoking cigarettes, sometimes you just need like a Lucy once or whatever, man. And that's, that's what happens with the new Kevin Smith film. That's my Lucy cigarette. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, we've been talking yeah. for quite a while. Sometimes about clerks, sometimes about various other things related to Kevin Smith. But do you have any final thoughts, any loose things we want to mention about Clerks, the original 1994 film? I mean, I mean, what, what I'll say is, I think, look, I, this is one of those 90s movies that can feel very, like, weird to watch now um, because it's dealing with so many ideas and, like, things that are very rooted in, like, the 90s and, like, what that time period was. And as someone who, like, was born around that time but didn't really experience that time... I still found there to be a charm and a uniqueness to this movie. I understand why it was such a big deal, and I understand what 
it was doing and, and why Kevin Smith got to have this career that he has. And it's a, a very good movie. I, I really, I genuinely enjoyed it in, in a way, not just as like an anthropological experiment, but as like, I'm enjoying watching this movie and it's dealing with ideas that you still see today. It, it still resonates in some, in a lot of ways. Um, I think the performances are, are, are great for the most part. And there's stuff that has aged poorly, but I think that it's, a, it's of its time. And I think, it's a unique movie, and I'm 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 glad that both of you guys have introduced me to Kevin Smith, so now I can <laughs> dive into his. You're gonna regret that. You're gonna fucking regret that statement so hard. <laughs> By the time next time we record, just Ryan's like, "Hey, I I went through the whole Kevin Smith filmography." I'm smoking like three cigarettes. Like, <sighs> <laughs> I just watched Yoga Hosers, Thomas. If this this podcast is over now. <laughs> you can't watch Yoga Hosers. You cannot fucking watch. No, don't watch Vulgar. Don't watch fucking Yoga Hosers. Just <laughs> pretend they don't exist. Don't even watch Cop Out. Just, just those, those are the three. The terrible. Don't go three. digging for the horror anthology that he literally sold as an NFT. Wait, did he? Hold on. What? Oh, you don't. You didn't know about this either. Yeah, the, that movie Kilroy was here, which was his horror anthology movie. He eventually sold the rights to it as an NFT, like a couple years ago. Oh yeah, he did. Yep. I mean, I wonder how that's doing now with the the, the crypto market's really at an all time high right now. I bet <laughs> that's true. I believe it's playing at the the former Staples Center, the Crypto dot com center. <laughs> I feel so bad too because it's like there's a part of me that like kind of feels oddly proud of artists who are able to grift on crypto to stupid people because it's like this industry doesn't give you your just due, especially when it comes to pay. But then on the other hand, it's like crypto is just so fucking scummy that it's like, I don't know, man. Why isn't Eminem beat selling as a crypto piece of like <laughs> like currency? I, I, an Eminem beat? Someone paid a hundred thousand dollars for an Eminem NFT. That's a beat. Like, what is this? Like, I don't understand yeah. this. And now it's do it's, it's and now it's worth like three dollars. <laughs> can't even get you a McDouble. <laughs> Uh, I just love, like, while we're recording this, folks, uh, Tori's cat is walking around and is just reminding me of the uh, the cat in Clerks. Oh, great cat. Yeah, with the le- the litter box that's on the counter and everything. Shout out that uh, the cat actor is named Lennon's Tomb, which is an amazing oh. name for a cat. Great. That's so good. <laughs> I hope Lennon's Tomb lived a, a happy-ass cat life being the, the Clerks cat. But I guess I'll say about Clerks 1 is Clerks 1 is forever a classic film. I mean, what else can be said? Um, it's part of a universe that I've thoroughly enjoyed of a director whose work I, for the most part, because of this universe, I've thoroughly enjoyed. So all the flaws, all the things that are dated and all, um, even though it's not even my favorite one, um, as far as like what I think is like the best movie that he made in that universe. For me, it's probably Chasing Amy Bar None, just because of the amount of care and just the acting and the rating and how everything felt like just pops at you as far as that movie is concerned, which, oh boy, we're talking about the things that don't age well. But anyways, (laughs) when it comes to Clerks 1, it's just, it's Kevin Smith at his purest. He's not a guy who is fucking arguing with critics on Twitter for not liking his movies. He's not a guy who can't take criticism. He's not the stereotype of this old stoner that we see before us now. He was just a hungry kid trying to make it. And you saw it in this movie. 
because uh, I'm terrified of my credit card debt, and this motherfucker maxed out like five credit cards just in this movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> he is clearly as much as I will shit on Gen Xers, they're, they were made of a certain amount of material that I clearly do not have in my uh, my personal life or in, in my life Same. aura. So yeah. I gotta. <laughs> I just want to be able to eat and not be homeless <laughs> and just be somewhat comfortable <laughs> with the uh, anxieties aside. And this motherfucker managed to take all that shit and made a, a, a goddamn indie empire out of it. Like, you, you can't not but respect the hustle. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just a fascinating detail about this movie, by the way, is that it was originally rated NC-17 for language. Right. And yeah. they had to debate with the MPAA about that to the degree that they had to bring in fucking Alan Dershowitz of the <laughs> OJ trial, fresh off the OJ trial, to <laughs> debate with the MPAA about being rated NC-17. That's crazy. That's insane. <laughs> we, got this, we got this guy off for murder now, right? We even got, we got, we got the second biggest challenge of your life. What? Getting rid of a movie rating. Yeah, talking to the MPAA. Yeah, exactly. He's like, he's like, he's, he's, he's just had that twinkle in his eye. He just like looked up, like he just did a thousand yard stare. And he's like, I will do this. He saw the Dershowitz signal <laughs> in the sky. <laughs> Quick, save oh. my independent movie. I'm literally in credit card debt now. Help. <laughs> oh, but yeah, I mean. I, I generally agree with what's been said here, and yeah, it, the, talking about Kevin Smith, there's a weird, just kind of like obviously backstory that I don't know if the last two hours kind of indicated to you all. We I had some personal baggage about Kevin Smith, um, but yeah, going back to this movie, it just feels like such an interesting time capsule, just such an interesting look at like what not just you know minimum wage culture was specifically at this time, but how certain things have not changed that much. In the time since how, you know, the way we talk about nerd culture has changed, the way that we sort of deal with the idea of like, oh, these guys complaining about their position in life and not really advancing it at the same time. There's a lot of stuff that feels very universal with all of that, that still feels very true, despite the fact that it's so firmly dated in that particular time. But it's an amazing achievement that Smith and all of the actors here managed to like make something that works as well as it does uh, and feel as authentic as it does. Something like, uh, we didn't mention her that much, but Lisa Spoonhauer, who plays Caitlin Bree, I think is like the perfect kind of casting for this movie where she's like, she feels like she would be the prettiest girl at a New Jersey high school, which that isn't a diss on Lisa Spoonhauer necessarily, but she feels like authentically like just sort of someone who you would have known in high school as like the prettiest girl possible in the, in a mediocre pool. <laughs> That sort of surrounds her. In New Jersey. Um, right, in New Jersey, of course, yes. But all that authenticity like really works to make this feel very much of 1993 or 4, but at the same time, you know, last for however long it has, and building this kind of indie empire and stuff for where, like I said, no matter what issues I have with Smith, with like his individual choices and the various films he's made, he has had a fascinating journey that few others can say they have. Even like... When you look at, once again, just the, the the three boys of Rodriguez, Tarantino, and Kevin Smith. Yeah. Who came up at this particular time. Just the weird turns they all make after this is insane. And it's, it's kind of interesting the ripples that have uh, come from Clerks and the various other indie movies of its era spread to now. But uh, yeah, now it's time 
for our weekly segment, Between the Lines. So yeah, on Between the Lines, uh, every episode, um, Brian, myself, and a guest, if we have one, like Tori, for example, um, will uh, recommend a movie that's kind of related to the film we're talking about to some degree, or maybe is an alternate choice for, say, an eye for indie for uh, this particular series, the Disney series. Um, but I'm going to go first with my particular recommendation, which is another one that would fit the sort of eye for indie Aesthetic, because it was also distributed by Miramax, um, the same year, in fact, uh, but from a different director, who uh, isn't from Jersey, but from another small, quiet place uh, <laughs> in a different country known as New Zealand, I have Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures, which, this comes at an interesting point in his career, where after he's made a lot of the splattery horror movies like Brain Dead and Bad Taste, but before he dives into big studio affair with Lord of the Rings movies, uh, Peter Jackson made this small little uh, sort of psychological thriller drama that's based on a true story uh, in which two young girls who go to like a Christian school in New Zealand uh, who are played by young Melanie Linsky and Kate Winslet, Kate Winslet in her film debut, baby. Are, you know, they play these two young girls in New Zealand who um, feel kind of like ostracized and awkward. And so they become fast friends and spend all their time together. Uh, but as time goes on, they start to kind of blur their lines between what's fantasy and what's reality. And how that eventually ends up in a bit of tragedy. My bold hot take is uh, this is my favorite Peter Jackson movie. I think it's a genuinely engrossing, beautiful, tragic story that really develops from, like, these two, Linsky and Winslet, even from their start, are just, like, so engrossing and wonderful, and you really get immersed in their friendship and the fantasy sequences that happen that are all, like, early examples of kind of the wedded digital, but with practical effects elements uh, being implemented. It's, like, so well done. I think a, a big part of that also comes from, you know, Jackson and Fran Walsh's partner wrote this, and it feels very authentic, like, the way these two young girls interact... It feels so authentic, like, these would be just two girls I would have known in my neighborhood. Which makes, once again, the darker elements of the story feel a lot more brutal and unsettling. And it's so, like, stripped down, there's not as much of, like, the bigger extravagant special effects things here. But I think when he does utilize them, it's all for, like, really building up this relationship between these two. And some implications that it might be a bit more than a friendship and stuff like that. This movie does such a great job of that, especially for, you know, Disney, once again buying up Miramax and, like, distributing this movie that is inherently, like, very uncommercial on a lot of levels, but somehow putting it out there and making, like, about $5 million, which is more than I honestly expect for, for it, you know, I just think it's uh, an amazing movie, a beautiful movie, a very truly, you know, tragic movie, about especially, like, these kids growing up in, like, the 50s and the questions about their relationship kind of building up to a lot of the homophobia that was around that time and stuff like that. It's it's an amazing movie. I truly love it. Um, Brian, you admitted to me you haven't seen any pre-Lord of the Rings Peter Jackson movies, right? 
That is correct. Um, despite me loving The Lord of the Rings, and I, I watch them every year, they're some of my favorite movies of all time, I've never really dived into the this that, that era of Jackson, but I'm becoming more and more curious, especially this. I, I, I didn't know that it was a a Disney era Miramax release. So I'm very interested to, to, to dive into this one in particular, because I love Melanie Linsky. She's one of my favorite actors, maybe. But yeah, I've never seen this movie, but I'm, I'm very curious to watch it now. And uh, Tori, have you seen this one? Uh, no, I haven't. Yeah. But Peter Jackson for me, kind of, it's like Lord of the Rings and uh, some of the Hobbit movies. No, I did see Brain Dead when I was a kid, actually. So that's a really good one. But uh, other than that, no. Nah. I haven't seen any of other stuff. Well, um, Brian, go ahead. What's your pick? Yeah, so I went with a, a similar kind of like you of this era of kind of weird that Disney put this out, but um, it's a Touchstone movie from 1998. Um, I couldn't resist. Uh, I had to watch Rushmore yet again. Just been thinking a lot about Wes. Um, I love Wes Anderson. Watched those shorts. Watched watched Asteroid City twice, and it's weird to think of this look at this movie and think that like one like Disney put this out but also how beautiful this movie is like watching it again and I haven't seen it in like years I mean since like high school maybe and just how great this movie is I mean it has a similar thing I think to Clerks in like a similar 90s kind of like 90s malaise right this 90s like what are we doing here what's going on everything's we're miserable and just I, I love I love Rushmore. I, I loved it more than I even thought I did because I, I just hadn't seen it in a while. I mean, Schwartzman is maybe one of my favorite actors of all time, and, and I think he's so good in Rushmore. It, it, it's just unreal how great he is, and like Bill Murray and yeah, Brian Cox as the the, the dean or, or whatever he is is so great, and just seeing kind of. A lot of the early stuff we see Wes doing is great, especially kind of the transitions. I notice all the transitions are like these curtains, which I hadn't noticed before. And it's so interesting considering like how recently he's been kind of deconstructing that idea of like stage play and stage craft and like just, you know, that, that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I love Rushmore. It's great. It's so beautiful. It also just like impacted me on like such a deeper level on this rewatch where I just really connected with it emotionally. Um, yeah, I love it. It's great. Um, I'm, I'm assuming you, you, you both have seen Rushmore and hopefully love it. <laughs> I mean, uh, I was about to do like the M. Bison meme from like Street Fighter where it's like, yes, yes, <laughs> when you're describing it. I'm just like, because that is one of my favorite uh, Wes Anderson movies. Oddly enough, I'm kind of in the minority here where I, I think I love Bottle Rocket more than that movie. Uh, Bottle Rocket's like a personal favorite of mine. Oh, interesting. But, um, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, like Rushmore is like, literally, like, I could argue is the 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 clerks of Wes Anderson's, like, filmography. Because even though Bottle Rocket helped start it all, it's kind of under the radar. And it's like the first, to the point where people think the first film is Rushmore. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but yeah, no, Rushmore's fantastic. I love, like, most of like I, I don't think there's a Wes Anderson film that I honestly hate. I'm not even being like hyperbolic when I say that. Um because I actually love uh The Life Aquatic. So oh, <laughs> which that's is not one of his best movies. Hell yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> 
but it was like a downtime in his career when people say that that it was a downtime before yeah so and, and i mean just like the thing of like like you mentioned like bottle rocket like how that bombed and just the fact that he got to make this movie at at touchstone at disney and how that kind of led to him like having this big career and it's just such a again this weird interesting time in disney's history where like they were just really investing in tour driven indie cinema which is just crazy to think about yeah weirdly kevin smith and uh westerners have a similar track record in that i was first exposed to them through comedy central because royal tenenbaums was on comedy central and remember it being very just different from like all the other movies like they would show Zoolander and Royal Tenenbaums like together is like oh Ben Stiller Owen Wilson right. double feature or whatever it's like these are two very different movies <laughs> despite both being from like, 2001 very different <laughs> weird movies um, but yeah Rushmore I think is definitely the one that I would say is the great starter Wes Anderson movie for sure yeah. if somebody hears but like I don't know what Wes Anderson is but what's a good like starter it's like that or Tenenbaums are both kind of like Pretty even much, though Tenenbaums yeah. I think is him leaning even more into the Anderson isms, Rushmore's a bit more accessible. It does, yeah. It has it has a lot of those like Wes Anderson isms, but is so like, it, <laughs> this is weird to say, but like it feels like a normal movie in so many ways. Where like, right. especially if you've seen any of the Netflix shorts that he just made, like those are insane. And like, but this it feels like a normal movie. There's normal like he's doing his whole like symmetrical shot thing, but it feels very natural and like. And it's actually shot on real locations that people exist in, not dollhouses that <laughs> yeah. he stuffs his yeah. actors into. Let's be clear. Like, late Wes Anderson is, he's like at another peak of his career, I think. But yeah, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, I, I'm, I love Budapest. Budapest oh, is just like one of my favorite fucking movies. But at the same time, like what I love about Rushmore is it's interesting just as like a snapshot of like a bunch of people at that time, like. This is Bill Murray very much at the peak of, like, his reinvention in the new millennium. This is, like, what would lead to loss in translation. Or just Schwartzman in a debut performance that's, like, so magnetic. So Immediately just, like, this guy needs to star in, like, 500 fucking movies. Yeah, and I had seen, like, other movies he had been in before. And, like, watching Rushmore, it didn't even register that this was his first movie because he comes out of the gate with so much confidence and so much, like, just, like fully formed like oh that's jason schwartzman that's just you know him it, it, it's so right. it, what a great performance yeah okay tour go ahead and round it out what's your pick for between the lines mine's gonna be a bit more simple um when it comes to relating specifically to, to kevin smith i'm gonna relate to that, that um with a movie the one movie uh directed by the actor who plays randall jeff anderson uh he directed a movie back in 2002 i've only seen once i would like to see it again not that this is like some great comedy movie or great anything, but there's not a whole lot of work between the two main leads and clerks that they've done outside of it. I think the only thing I've seen Brian O'Halloran do is I think he voice acted in a Pokemon episode at one point. But Jeff Anderson has actually tried like making his own movie similar to Kevin Smith, like making these indie kind of slacker sex con comedies or whatever. This movie was made in 2002 or released in 2002 and it's called Now You Know. And it's basically about... Uh, a couple played by slightly past Clueless, but before NYPD Blue or before Law and Order, Jeremy Sisto, and uh, pre-Parks uh, uh, and Rec, uh, Rashida Jones. And they both play as a couple um, where a guy on the eve of his bachelor party is finding out that the girl he's engaged to doesn't want to be married to him anymore. 
And basically, it's just a bunch of, I want to say hijinks, but basically a bunch of awkward and also very dated, hasn't dated, hasn't aged well situations. Um, and the reason why I bring this up is that the top actors in it are obviously, you know, Jeremy Sisto, Rashida Jones, Jeff Anderson himself is in the movie. Also, Trevor Furman, the guy who plays Elias in the Clerks movie. He's also in it. I think this was like his actual film debut that led to him being in Clerks too. So there's like a lot of things where this kind of played into between Clerks 1 and 2 where it got a lot of actors work. Um, and as far as the film itself, it's like a solid kind of like late 90s, early 2000s comedy. Um, I think it's worth checking out. I don't think people will necessarily think it's like great or even memorable in a way, but it is cool to see, uh, especially someone like Rashida Jones uh, in, in an early project that she was in. And as well as seeing the fact that at one point Jeff Anderson was confident enough to get behind the camera and do something that his, uh, one of his best friends was clearly able to do and clearly got him to be able to do in the first place. So I just think it's interesting that he actually has a project. He actually has a full fledged film. He actually had like a really good cast as well. And I think that's, uh, uh interesting enough to check out. Yeah. Um, I have seen this. This was one of many examples of like, Kevin Smith has his name attached to anything, so I must consume it. Um, it was like this, the vulgar movie, Drawing Flies, which is like a movie about Sasquatch that Jason Lee stars in, and Silent Bob's also in it. It's yeah. weird. Hmm. One of many weird I actually never heard was... of that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a very odd movie. Um, but... Um, yeah, one of many weird places where like uh, Silent Bob appears in a non-VSQ movie like that. And remember in Scream Three, Brian, when that happened? I'll be honest. I saw that he was in Scream Three. I have not seen Scream Three in years, so I don't remember. But like, is he in it as his as? Yeah, Jay and Silent Bob pop up. There's a bit where like Courtney Cox is walking on the movie studio lot for Stab Three. And Jane oh. and Bob are just taking the tour? Right, of course. Okay, now I remember this. Yeah, okay. Which weird continuity thing, because the year later is Jane and Bob Strike Back, which involves them sneaking onto a, another movie studio lot. And on the set, Wes Craven is shooting Scream 4 in 2001. Uh, okay. Right, where okay. it's like Shannon Doherty gets chased by somebody and turns out Ghostface is a monkey. Oh my god. See, that's the classic we should have gotten instead of Scream 4 that we got uh, 10 years ago, or 10 years later. I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm good with the, the one we got, because I don't know if I want the, oh no, Ghostface is a monkey twist. <laughs> Cowards. Cowards, all of you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I do not remember much about this Now You Know movie. I'd be maybe curious to revisit it, but yeah, it's it's been yeah. a very long time. Yeah, I'm not saying, yeah, definitely not saying put it on the top of your list, but it is interesting to know that it. I think it's great when actors try to branch out into directing. Obviously, it's more yeah. not always successful for for a multitude of reasons. You know what I mean? Uh, I think Nimoy directed The Search for Spock, and that didn't end well for a lot of folks. Excuse me, he also directed Three Men and a Baby, the highest grossing movie in 1987. So how dare you? <laughs> well, that I'm not gonna. Oh. Fair enough. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> dis, dis, I will not disrespect the man who gets his head, brains blown to uh, to gears in the uh, Dark of the Moon Transformers movie. My apologies. How dare right, I disrespect? Of course. Spock. No. <laughs> what are you, but, Michael Bay? Disrespecting <laughs> that man? But yeah, like it, 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 it is interesting because like the movie, like I, I like it. I, I, I used to like indie comedies that are you know even if they're not the greatest films in the world. 
they're interesting enough for me to follow. Also, it's just it's just weird now to think that at one point Rashida Jones was in a uh, a movie directed by Jeff Anderson. That whole thing just sounds interesting as fuck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also, Earl Bowen of the Terminator movies is in it. Apparently, I I was not aware of that. Um, oh, wow. And uh, I just want to like have a brief connection point back to like what you were talking about earlier. You have seen Brian O'Halloran in one other thing, Tori, and also Brian has. Um, remember in M. Night Shyamalan's The Happening when John Leguizamo yeah. dies in the Jeep? The guy driving the Jeep is Brian O'Halloran. <laughs> you just see Brian O'Halloran, you just see Dante's face looking up at the fucking rearview mirror, and he, he doesn't say anything. He just looks up and it's like, oh, hey, Dante. And he goes back to minding his own and business. And he gets ejected out of the Jeep after it hits a tree. <laughs> Weird. Dude, I, I love that film. That movie's fucking great. <laughs> it is a great movie. <laughs> I agree. That was one thing about that I love about podcasting with Tom is that it made me uh, uh, realize that I was wrong for hating the happening and that I, I love the happening for completely wrong reasons. But regardless, I love the happening. <laughs> yes, yes. But now uh, let's uh, do our wrap up here. Let's repeat our titles for anyone out there in case they want to add them to their watch list. Uh, my recommendation was the 1994 Peter Jackson film, Heavenly Creatures. Uh, mine was the 1998, also the year of my birth, uh, movie by Wes Anderson, Rushmore. Stop telling people how young you are. Uh, <laughs> my, my old ass which suggests the 2002 Jeff Anderson-directed movie, Now You Know. And he's older, okay? He's older than both of us, okay? We're two decades younger than Jeff Anderson. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, yeah. I think, for the record, the most weird three movies we've ever recommended on an episode of this show. <laughs> like the three wildest, <laughs> yeah. different, disparate movies that we've come, recommended on this show. Uh, but... Now it's time we uh, end this episode, and we'll do our wrap-up here, because we want to thank some people. We want to thank, uh, first, uh, Burial Grid for our intro music. Purchase his music at burialgrid.com, including his new album that dropped at the end of October. Shout-out to him. Uh, thanks to Michelle Kyle for our artwork. Find her at mishkyle96 on Twitter. Um, and thanks to our loyal Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash cinema Number two letter, where uh, you get access to bonus episodes that we put up, bonus audio, like you would have heard uh, some reviews recently for, like, The Killer and some other Oscar-baiting movies. I'm sure we're recording this a bit in advance, so I'm sure whatever review roundup we might have done, uh, we have a variety of different movies that we'll be covering. And also, this will be near the end of November, so we would have had our Into the Woods discussion mm -hmm. about the uh, 1991 uh, stage recording. And uh, I, I want to thank our guest here, Tori, who has, uh, you know, graciously decided to appear on the show. Thank you so much, Tori, for being on. And I think you have something to plug related to the Patreon, though. Do you not? Uh, absolutely. Uh, episode one of the uh, vastly original and superior Adult Swim podcast, Marco Polo, me and uh, the great Thomas Mariani here, uh, talking about your favorite nostalgia blast from that started in 2001 here in good old Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, with uh, with Adult Swim. We got the first episode up on Patreon right now. So uh, sacrifice us, throw a couple of coin, and uh, you'll be able to listen to it. Yes, uh, that first episode would have come out like at the end of October, and around the same time we'll have had episode two, uh, where in the first one we talked about uh, Smiling Friends and Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, as randomly selected. 
And then uh, we also would have randomly talked about uh, an episode of Stroker and Hoop and 12-Ounce Mouse. So very, <laughs> very, uh, you know, Adult Swim-focused. Uh, Brian's too young to have been exposed to any of this Adult Swim material. Literally, uh, the noises that came out of your mouth, I <laughs> d- didn't understand. <laughs> I could have made up oh, all wow. of those titles of those shows and he wouldn't have known. <laughs> I feel like if, I feel like the peak would have been like if we said Boondocks or Rock with the Hunger Force, he would have been like, "Oh, I've yep. seen a gif or two once or mm-hmm. twice." But like, right. if he knew what twelve ounce mouse was, I question what the fuck he was doing at age six or seven. He should not be. Like, we shouldn't have been watching twelve ounce mouse at fourteen, fifteen. God forbid, seven or eight. <laughs> right. But yeah, one of the most crudely fucking drawn animated shows ever. Please give us a shot. Check out the show. Um, I love Adult Swim. I love talking about Adult Swim, and I get to talk about Adult Swim with one of my best friends. So, what what better of a time oh. could one oh, could one ask for? <laughs> no, I gave you an outlet to talk about Adult Swim things on Wax. Finally, finally, <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> yeah, and that comes out monthly, so you'll expect an episode in November, and then one uh, for December as well. You know, the Christmas season. We'll uh, we'll have all that coming out on the Patreon. But uh, you can find us uh, for free on uh, various socials, uh, Instagram, Facebook, X, if that still exists at this time, uh, at Cinema Number 2 Letter. That's where we added all the socials on various different social media platforms. You can find me as at NotTheWho'sTommy on various socials, and I also do some writing at uh, MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and at Film-Cred.com. Uh, yeah, you can find me on, on Twitter as well, at uh, B-R-Y-A-N-D-R-A-D-E and the number three. Or you can follow me on Letterboxd and uh, see what movies I'm watching and stuff and what lists I'm updating. Always got to update those lists. Yeah, see him log 37 Kevin Smith things in a row. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, 37 becomes a recurring joke in these movies, Brian. Oh, God. 37... 30- <laughs> Just 37 of various like, different things. I'm going to really regret laughing at that joke, though. Like, I bet. By oh, the end of it. oh boy. yeah, right. I'm original because you've seen three Kevin Smith movies. Just like, wow, the number 37, that's a reference to the one movie. Yes, <laughs> the one movie. Um, and uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts uh, or other podcasting platforms, wherever you get them. Uh, if you're listening on Talk Film Society, listen to all the other great shows on the network. There's a whole Kevin Smith podcast that I was on. Uh, last year, uh, where I talked about Zach and Miri, uh, and a bunch of other great people from the Talk From Society people talked about all the Kevin Smith things. And you can also dig into our archives and our Podbean main feed for the first two seasons and the old Double Edge, Double Bill stuff. All that is there for you to peruse. And nothing else, if you can't support us on the Patreon, we get it. You know, money can be tight. The free way to help us out, though, is to rate, review, or simply share the show around. That gives us more visibility, especially, you know, when we're working our day jobs and we're not even supposed to be there that day. I put PTO in. Wasn't even supposed to be there today, Thomas. No, I wasn't supposed to be either. That's right. Uh, we still work at the same job. That's my canon. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We're going to be working there for uh, 10 years from now. And then we're going to buy the business. And, own it. <laughs> Ten years, and one of us is going to die of a heart attack. Place your bets. Uh, but <laughs> oh. you won't die if you get the vegan option. You just got to get the vegan option. The, the vegan option at movies. <laughs> exactly. Got to get you that vegan cholesterol, that good cholesterol, you know? Which, which, by the way, is a weird thing we didn't mention. Like, that is a parody of Disney from Dogma, Brian. Mm-hmm. 
to like represent like the golden calf, like it's a religious like parody thing, oh, and then just okay. becomes like the recurring like the fast food restaurant that's in like the rest of these movies. Oh, it's it's like just the, the big Kahuna of of like Kevin Smith. Yes, right, okay. exactly. Okay. Right, the Apple cigarettes is movie. The golden oh, calf, the red apple, love them. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, but yeah, so. After this very long episode, everybody, um, we'll be back next week uh, for our end for new pick for the Disney miniseries, which will be Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which all three of us have seen. I think we're all fans. Right, Tori, you like the Guardians of the Galaxy 3? It's literally, like, probably my my, my favorite MCU film. It's literally the closest thing to a Rick and Morty movie with how disgusting it is, but how amazing it is. I fucking love it. <laughs> yeah, ironically, the one MCU movie not written by Rick and Morty writers of recent. <laughs> yes, exactly. That too. Give me more flesh space bases, please. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yes. Yeah. So don't worry. If you thought this episode was too long, we'll be talking about the MCU. So that will that'll be a quick what, like hour long, right? <laughs> Real brief. Real brief. They only made a few movies. <laughs> oh yeah, right. just yeah. just. just just that, you know, one and a half full length movies, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, the Lion King one and a half, it's like that, but with, uh, you know, Marvel movies. Yeah. Well, on that note, everybody, it's time for this episode to end the only way we know how by wrangling out like Randall. Yeah, we're dancing out the store. <laughs> we're closed. There's Randall. He's berserker. Na, 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 na. <laughs>